1619 to 1865, more than 4 million African people and their descendants were enslaved in the United States and its colonies. We've recently seen a push from states and cities to address the atrocities by proposing reparations. In California, for instance, a first-of-its-kind task force is on a mission to seriously consider the concept. Last year, the state enacted Assembly Bill 3121. That proposal called for a reparations task force to study how slavery impacted the state. Some of the responsibilities include describing the institution of slavery in California, developing proposals to get rid of policies that discriminate against black communities, and recommending remedies to the many harms endured, and determining how compensation should be calculated and who is eligible to receive it. The task force kicked off its study in June with hearings on housing and education, segregation, the impact of environmental racism, discrimination in California's banking policies, and much more. They have until July 2023 to make recommendations to the state. For more on all of this, I want to turn to someone with firsthand experience on the task force. Camila Moore is a lawyer, a reparatory justice scholar, and the chair of the nine-member California Reparations Task Force. Thank you so much for joining us here on Amplified. And, and I just want to start off by asking you to tell us what does it mean uh, to you to be part of this task force in this moment? Hi, thank you for having me, Aisha. This is such an honor to be here. Um, and to answer your question directly, it is an immense honor and privilege to be a part of the California Reparations Task Force, let alone to be elected as the chairperson. Uh, this is historic and the first in the nation type of effort. Um, and so I'm just looking forward to working alongside um, the eight other task members, task force members, to deliver reparations proposals so that you know these proposals can ultimately help black Californians. Now, a lot of people are thinking to themselves, hold on, let me go back to my U.S. history. Did California actually have enslaved people? Wasn't California, you know, didn't it become a state at a time when they actually didn't have slavery? Describe this for us and tell us how we got here in California that um, we've passed this bill and this committee now exists. So that's a great question. So at our first substantive hearing in September, we actually covered the question, you know, is California responsible for slavery? Um, you know, acknowledging the facts that yes, California was admitted to the union as a free state. Um, however, California, as soon as um, they entered into the union, um, passed a fugitive slave act or law. So basically, you know, people who were enslaved, black folks who were enslaved, brought to California by their slave owners to mine for gold, for instance, um, if they happened to escape or any of that or any of those matters, right, they could be sold back into slavery. And so we invited people to provide expert testimony like Stacy Smith, who is a scholar on California history, and she shared um, to the task force and to the public the various ways in which California was complicit in maintaining the institution of slavery. And the Fugitive Slave Act is just one example of that. 
Mm, so when people hear reparations, of course, they automatically think of one lump sum check that everybody's getting paid rather than changes in policy or long-term investment. So explain some of the different types of remedies that your task force is examining. That's a great question. So under AB 3121, the actual legislative text, um, it mandates that any reparations proposals comport to international human rights law standards. So under international uh, human rights law, reparations comes in five forms. One of those notably is compensation, which is a check. Um, um, but then there's also other forms that the task force will consider like rehabilitation, um, you know, so that denotes you know, free mental health services, for example. Um, there's restitution that accounts for stolen land, like for the Bruce Beach example, right? Um, then there's also satisfaction, which denotes a formal apology from the state um, and guarantees of non-repetition, which denotes conversations around significant police reform um, and other areas. So you've had a small number of meetings and public testimonies uh, so far. I I'm interested in, you know, hearing about some of the moments that enlightened you and served as a reminder of how important this task force is. And, and also, too, what are some of the challenges that you and the other eight members uh, face? Right. So we've invited people, as I said, to provide expert testimony. So Stacy Smith um, was an example, but we also invited people like Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote uh, Cast and Warmth of the Other Sons, to describe the various ways in which Black American athletes moved from the South to California for, for greater opportunity. But then we also heard from people to provide a personal testimony. So we heard from um, someone named Paul Austin, who has been making his rounds in the media uh, for him and his wife, um, who was lowballed um, by $500,000 in um, their home appraisal. Um, and he testified to the California Reparations Task Force uh, to describe the various uh, ways in which him and his family was discriminated against um, through this home appraisal process. So um, all of, so much testimony has been so enlightening, um, from personal to expert testimony. But we are two years away now uh, from your recommendations, but I am sure the entire state anxiously awaits uh, the findings. Some lawmakers like California State Senator Stephen Bradford have legislative concerns and, quote, worries about the political difficulty of enacting sweeping reparations, even in California, with the statehouse dominated by Democrats. Some of his colleagues may feel it's a bridge too far that they're not willing to cross, meaning you've already got people asking, well, what do I get out of reparations? I didn't enslave anyone, so why should I have to pay? Does this also concern you? And what's the workaround here? Yes, I, it, it's also, it's a concern for me, but you know, part of this process is not only reaching out to Black Californians as an impacted group, but also reaching out to all Californians, like regardless of identity, all Californians should be invested in what this reparations task force is doing because all Californians are impacted by anti-Black discrimination um, in one way or another, whether, you know, we want to admit it or not, right? And so this, the part of this process is, a truth and reconciliation process. And I think we're hopeful and optimistic that, you know, by the end of this two years, you know, all Californians, most Californians, particularly in the California legislature, will see 
um, the importance and the import of this work and see how they also can benefit, even if they're not um, black identifying. You know what's weird to be in Washington, D.C., right? And all the niggas that live here and they can't vote. Because this could be a state of niggas. Y'all start voting. This would be the first state niggas on. Be D.C., dark country. The number of black residents in U.S. cities with some of the most prominent black communities has decreased dramatically over the past two decades, including New York, Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia. Politico calls it the next great migration and has just launched a series with the same name that takes a look at the effect of that migration on politics and culture. Politico's Brecton Booker, who used to be here at NPR, joins us. Brecton, wonderful reporting. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. The, the first installment focuses on Chicago. Why have so many black families been leaving Chicago? Well, that is the question we've been trying to answer for some time now. There are a lot of families that are, are looking to leave because they want to have bigger homes and better schools and get away from crime that's in the city. So they move to the suburbs. Other folks are just saying, like, it's just time to go. There's not enough here for me because when I first came to Chicago or when my family first moved to Chicago, there were thriving black businesses. There were black banks. There were were uh, a lot more offerings in the city, and that has really disappeared now. So I want to go find some place that I can live where I can work and try to find and recreate that type of life. And, and so folks are, are leaving in droves from, from Chicago. Yeah. And this is substantially changing the map of local politics, isn't it? The Chicago City Council is now involved in a debate about uh, redrawing the lines for its 50 seats. And there are expected to be fewer black representatives as a result. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, it has an effect up and down from state to, to local to now to city politics. So you're seeing that with a decrease of black populations in the city of Chicago, that uh, there are other populations that are going to fill that void. So you're seeing a, a large increase of Latino population. You're seeing big increases of, of Asian populations. And you know, politics is about numbers. So when one group is up, another group is down. And there are, are real battles being fought right now about what the city will look like over the next 10 years. And that's continuing as we speak. Bracken, not, not two days go by. We don't read about another particularly vicious and tragic murder in Chicago. To what degree is the crime rate playing into the, the calculations that families have to make about their futures? Well, I mean, if you're living in Chicago and you have the means to move, I'm sure that plays a, a big role in whether or not you stay. And if, if you feel like you can put down roots and continue to keep your family safe and still send them to get a good education, you also have to remember, Scott, that there are a lot of people that don't have the means to move. That mm -hmm. is their home. Yeah. Where are some of the places people are moving? That is the uh, a million dollar question there, Scott. You know, as you know, the census figures provide a, a snapshot of of where people are at you know any given time every ten years. So we we desperately tried to get some harder data on where people are are leaving to go to. What we can anecdotally say is that people are moving to the suburbs. We saw 
the suburbs jump over the last uh, 20 years quite a bit. It, it went from less than 500,000 black residents to just over uh, 600,000 in the, in the last 20 years. So you're seeing people move to the suburbs, even as far out as across state lines and into Indiana. Mm-hmm. Other than that, we we are still doing some reporting on trying to find where other residents move. And are we seeing that folks are, are moving in droves to the south? There is some evidence that that is true, but we're not entirely sure which cities they are moving to and, and, and which numbers. Is uh, Is Houston among those cities that you're looking at? Houston is definitely, I mean, mm-hmm. nine out of 10 large cities with majority black populations saw populations decrease uh, of African-Americans. Houston was the only one that saw the increase. So we're, we're, we're looking into why that is. Surely cost of living, weather is better there. Well, I forgive me. I say this, as you know, as a Chicagoan, but weather is better there between hurricanes. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And when the grids are are working and you're yeah. not losing power. Yes, all that is true. But there seems to be better economic opportunity for folks there. And we're trying to pinpoint what are the industries that are attracting Black residents in such high numbers and what's keeping them there. Politico's Bracton Booker, thanks so much for being with us. Good job. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. In Europe, many power plants burn wood pellets to make electricity. It's a practice with a lot of controversy. The power producers say it's a renewable energy source. But many scientists and conservationists say spewing huge amounts of carbon into the air now and waiting for trees to grow back and absorb some of it is bad policy, given the current state of global warming. Still, the burning of wood pellets is a large and growing global industry with its roots right here in North Carolina. WUNC environment reporter Celeste Gracia visited Sampson County to find out what the locals there think. The flow of trucks coming and going to and from Enviva's wood pellet plant in rural Sampson County is constant. About half the vehicles coming down these two-lane roads are regular cars, and the rest are large 18-wheelers. A quarter of a mile away from the facility is a small neighborhood of about two dozen modest houses and mobile homes. Latoni Herring lives here with his family. He says the trucks usually race down the service road in front of his house. Baby, we got kids out here. I don't let my kids come outside no more because I don't know where them trucks are going to come. And their ball rolls out the street. He can't stop. They're gone. I can't, I can't do that. Next door, John Altman says it used to be quiet before Inviva moved in. We didn't have no you know, machinery here all the time. We didn't have none of that. Didn't have too much of dust, you know, that was you know, like they, that smoke that comes up from over there. It's good for the economy, you know, for jobs and things, but uh, like I said, that pollution and everything and that noise, it's like a grinding and banging and all, all that. But around the corner, Lillian Mincy feels differently about the plant. She says the noise or dust or the trucks have never bothered her. No problem at all. I mean, I think it's great for the neighborhood, for the community, for people to get jobs. I spoke to about a dozen residents in this neighborhood. All of them were either black or Hispanic, and mostly everyone said their house has been in their family for generations. About half the people I spoke to agreed with Altman and Herring that the plant is bothersome and affects their livelihood. The other half agreed more with Mincy. The plan is great for the economy. I believe that even though there may be some economic benefit, that the 
the detriments that occur are much worse than the eco alleged economic uh, benefit that comes with these industries being here. That's Sherry White-Williamson, a local advocate for environmental justice. She points out that this area is also home to industrial hog farms and the state's largest landfill. So to her, Enviva's presence just exacerbates the issues this community is already facing. But Enviva says its facilities do not present any risk to public health or the environment. In a Zoom call coordinated by Enviva and the National Press Foundation, Communications Director Yana Kratsova said the health of community members is a priority. We are in those communities. We we'll live and work. We employ people there. People go to the same church, same deli, same gas station. So we hear from people and where we live, where we work, if something is not right. Since opening in October 2016, Enviva's facility in Sampson County has received five air quality violations from the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality for emitting too much carbon monoxide and volatile organic compounds. Also speaking on this organized Zoom call was Ray Jordan, the assistant director for the Sampson County Economic Development Commission. He agreed with the sentiment that Enviva is a valued community partner. Enviva, since they've been in our community, has paid in $4.1 million in property taxes makes them the third largest taxpayer in Sampson County. So obviously, you know, we're, we're very thrilled to have them here and we've had good relationships since day one. Back in the neighborhood across from Enviva's plant, Latoni Herring says he just wants to feel more comfortable at home. We're not going nowhere and we hopefully the noise will stop or at least, at least they can stop, the, stop us from feeling it. That feeling, when you feel it, that, that I, I, please, if I can get rid of that, I'd be a-okay. Celeste Gracia, North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. People have asked me about this for years. They say, how can you get the white supremacists to keep you from having to move from a stable situation that you have where you're well-established or getting established, and it looks like you're going to get on your feet, but maybe for the first time or maybe for the second time you're getting on your feet after having been dislocated from somewhere else. And my response down through the years has been, there's no way you can compensate for that other than to be ready to move because they have to do this. They have to keep, you might say, like in old Western type movies, keep them squatters on the move. In recent days, President Biden has been on the road touting his $1.2 trillion infrastructure package in it, more than $100 billion for repairing highways, roads, and other projects. For many growing cities, that could mean expanding freeways, building more lanes, and possibly adding to a troubling and ongoing history of American cities plowing mostly black and Latino neighborhoods to build freeways. Here's Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg speaking with the Sacramento Press Club this past week. Well, it's very concerning. It's something that we need to pay attention to so that these dollars are always doing good, not harm, that they are connecting, not dividing. He was it's responding to a recent report from the Los Angeles Times, which found that over the past three decades, more than 200,000 people have been displaced from their homes due to highway expansions, with black and Latino areas disproportionately bearing the brunt. Ben Poston and Liam Dillon reported the piece, and Dillon is here to tell us more. Hi, Liam. Hi, Adrian. I think some listeners might be aware of the legacy that stemmed from a lot of our nation's freeways and the communities that they displaced. But I think a lot of people might be surprised to learn that that continues in this century. Based on your reporting, what's the extent to which this continues today? 
Yeah, and that's something, frankly, that we were surprised at the LA Times when we embarked on this investigation, trying to understand sort of the extent and effects of uh, of highway displacements over the past 30 years. And we found that nationwide, uh, more than 200,000 people uh, have lost their homes to road expansions, and that number is an undercount because there's some data that's missing. And then we also wanted to understand sort of whether some of the neighborhoods that were affected the first time or Black and Latino communities that were affected in the 50s and 60s during the initial era of highway construction were sort of still bearing the brunt of some of these expansions. And what we found in examining some of the largest projects across the country is that, in fact, they were, you know, some major projects of one being planned right now uh, through the city of Houston, uh, a thousand families and neighborhoods that are 75 percent black and Latino would lose their homes. Uh, Tampa, Florida, another 750 families lost their homes to recent interstate expansions. Uh, Los Angeles, 850 families in Latino neighborhoods. And so uh, we really are finding that these mega projects are, are still affecting Black Latino neighborhoods in, in many ways like they did a uh, half century ago. Was there anyone you met or, or learned of in your reporting who puts a face uh, to this issue? Yeah, so in Florida, Tampa, Florida, there's a gentleman, uh, Willie Dixon, who uh, first lost his home in a in a black neighborhood there uh, in the 1960s when Florida Department of Transportation officials built uh, Interstate 275. Uh, then he moved three miles away, started a new life with his wife, lived there for 40 years, and then Florida transportation officials decided to expand Interstate 275, and he lost his second home. I think that really puts a point on the generational impacts that have occurred from both highway construction and, in more recent years, uh, expansions of those same freeways. As I mentioned, President Biden signed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill last month that's putting hundreds of billions of dollars to building and repairing roads. Uh, are there parts of that bill that set out to address these disparities we're talking about? Yeah, so there's a $1 billion uh, new program tucked in there. It's called Reconnecting Communities. And the point of it is to potentially even tear down freeways, sort of uh, address some of the harms from uh, racist planning decisions with respect to where freeways were cited in the past and, and sort of reconnect as the pr- program states. But, um, you know, that amount, again, only $1 billion sort of pales in comparison to the potential uh, hundreds of billions of dollars that are essentially unrestricted where state transportation departments could use it to further expand freeways and, and in many cases, continue to displace families. It sounds like you're saying the federal government, in making this money available, could have done more to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again? Well, indeed, in earlier versions of the bill, there was provisions that would have required states to dedicate that money to repairing freeways before building new ones. Those provisions were not in the final bill. And also that uh, $1 billion fund for reconnecting communities was also much higher Taking a step back here, states are building and expanding these freeways to deal with congestion and traffic. Is there proof that these sorts of projects ease traffic and congestion over the long term? So that's the sort of the stated argument is, you know, if traffic is so bad on these freeways, we need to expand them. You know, adding lanes means more more cars can come through and hopefully ease congestion. But, you know, there's a lot of research uh, that shows that that's not the case, especially in the long term. Um, in Houston, suburban Houston, there was an, uh, an expansion over the past couple of decades of Interstate 10 uh, that widened it to 26 lanes across at one point, so one of the widest freeways uh, in the country. And, you know, traffic problems there during rush hour are just as bad as they were in in many cases before the expansion. You know, in the long term, we're throwing billions of dollars at these expansions, and and in many cases, we're not getting the results that were promised. That was Liam Dillon. He covers housing for the Los Angeles Times. 
and recently published an investigation with reporter Ben Poston on the ongoing displacement of communities of color due to freeways. Liam Dillon, thanks so much. Thanks, Adrian. A lawsuit in California claims that an appraisal company there undervalued one family's home because that family is black. The suit says this is a form of redlining, an old practice of housing discrimination. From member station KQED, Kate Wolf reports. Ten minutes north of San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge, there's a small, historically black community called Marin City. That's where Paul Austin lives, with his wife and two school-aged kids. They bought their home five years ago for $550,000. Since then, they've extended the living room, built out the ground floor, and added a deck with a commanding view of the San Francisco Bay. So all of the doors open up, and, you know, it's pretty peaceful and enjoyable. In 2020, Austin wanted to refinance, so he got his home appraised. When the number came back a few weeks later, it was way lower than he thought it should be. The appraiser valued the four-bedroom, two-bath house at just under a million dollars. You put a lot of work into your home, and you go from being excited, you know, like, ooh, like, let's see what this, how this is going to turn out, to feeling, um, to feeling upset. So Austin and his wife scheduled a new appraisal. But this time, they asked a white friend to pose as the homeowner. That appraiser valued the house at almost $1.5 million. We were relieved a little bit, right? But still mad, right? Like, God leash, like, we just proved that, you know, the system is so flawed, which we already knew. The appraiser who gave the Austins the lower price, Jeanette Miller, didn't respond to multiple emails and phone calls asking for comment on the lawsuit. Ronald Garland is an appraiser in the Bay Area. He says his industry is susceptible to racial bias. And appraisal is a very human process. Most often, a house's value is determined by assessing the market and finding out what similar properties in the area sold for. Those similar properties are called comps. Garland says when two appraisals are very different, it's because the appraisers were probably using very different comps. He thinks that's what happened to the Austins, given the $500,000 difference. Quite frequently when I see this much disparity, I see two bad appraisals. (laughs) You know... In court filings, the Austins allege that their first appraiser used inappropriate comps. Andre Perry is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. He says what happened to the Austins in Marin City is indicative of what happens with comps in predominantly Black neighborhoods. The problem with that approach is when you compare one home to another in a home that's been discriminated against, You effectively recycle discrimination over and over again. Perry and his colleagues have studied the issue and found that homes in Black neighborhoods are undervalued by $48,000 on average. Black people are still deemed unworthy of investment, reminiscent of the redlining of the past. Redlining is a historic, now illegal practice of banks literally drawing red lines on maps around areas where Black people live to show where home loans should not be approved because it would be considered a bad investment for the bank. As for homeowner Paul Austin, he says he wishes he didn't have to file this lawsuit. 
we shouldn't have to be fighting a fight that our grandparents fought when they were young. But Austin says he's willing to be the face of this fight and expose racism in the appraisal industry. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wolf in Marin City, California. Ron DeSantis, Iraq War veteran, JAG officer who dealt with terrorists in Guantanamo Bay. Florida's public schools could soon be sued if they attempt to teach critical race theory, which so far none of them has. Governor DeSantis today unveiled proposed legislation called the Stop Woke Act that would make that course of study illegal. It would also prevent corporations from teaching CRT to employees. As News for Jack's reporter Ann Maxwell tells us, this would strengthen an existing ban. She's joining us now live. Ann. Mary, Tom, it was back in June when the State Board of Education banned the teaching of critical race theory in Florida's public K-12 schools. CRT, as it's also known, focuses on how racism still affects our country's educational, legal, and political systems. Local school districts tell News for Jacks they've never taught CRT, which is a graduate-level course of study. Governor DeSantis says the Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act will be the strongest legislation of its kind. We have an ability to just draw a line in the sand and say that's not the type of society that we want. The proposal would put the Florida Department of Education's prohibition on teaching critical race theory in schools into law, prohibit school districts, colleges, and universities from hiring CRT consultants, and allow parents, employees, and students to sue to enforce the law and collect attorney's fees if the court sides with them. So I think that gives parents the ability to go in and ensure that our state standards are being followed. Democrats are calling the proposal a distraction. I feel that we actually should be focusing on Real issues like passing a people-centered budget. Governor DeSantis says the proposal will be introduced in the upcoming legislative session. It could possibly pass, but if the people come together and push back on this, if we're making phone calls and we're sending emails, it may we may be able to stop this ridiculous, this ridiculous bill that they're talking about crafting. The Florida Education Association, which touts itself as representing more than 150,000 educators, released a statement about the act. It reads in part, teachers should have the freedom to teach honest, complete facts about historical events like slavery and civil rights without being censored by politicians. The governor's announcement today goes against this fundamental American value. And we haven't yet seen a full text of this proposal, but we could in just a few weeks when the legislature reconvenes in January. Live from the South Bank and Maxwell Channel 4, the local station. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. Standardized tests have long been criticized as unfair to low-income students. These children often face entrenched challenges that make it difficult to score well. That's why many have applauded as standardized tests have been forced to take a back seat during the pandemic. But a new WBEZ analysis shows that grades follow some of the same trend lines. WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp joined Lisa Labas with details. So, Sarah, what are your findings about grades? So as you might know, many people talked about learning loss during the pandemic. Without standardized tests, I was looking at some way to see whether there was learning loss. And it turns out the grades really were affected. There were way fewer A's and B's given out in 2021 than in 2019. But, and this surprised me, even in 2019, schools serving mostly poor kids gave out way fewer A's and B's than schools serving more middle class and students that aren't low income. They also gave out way more D's and F's. 
So there's this deep-seated gap between who gets top grades in our public school system, and this entrenched gap was widened during the pandemic. Do we know why this is happening? There's a combination of explanations, including access to resources and some of the things that you might expect. One expert offered up an explanation that one might not think about. Not all teachers have the same philosophy around grading. The district doesn't give directives. Colleges of education don't really teach teachers how to grade. And this culminates in a wide variety of how grades are given out. Some experts say too often teachers are grading based on behavior or compliance and less on what students know. And what do teachers say about grading? So this is a really controversial topic. And indeed, teachers have a lot of different takes on the issue. One first grade teacher in a school in a very low income neighborhood on the West Side says she's super focused on whether her students can meet grade level standards. She says she gives out very few A's. If you're meeting the expectation, that's a C. And I think some people think C's are bad. No, it's not. You know what you're supposed to know. You do what you're supposed to do. That's a C. If you're, like, excelling, you're going to be, and if you could teach this by yourself, that's an A. This is what's called standard-based grading. Not all teachers do that. When asked about this disparity, this teacher wasn't surprised. She says middle-class communities have a lot more resources to help their kids meet standards. She also says that she suspects that parents in middle-class schools put pressure on teachers to give good grades. And others point out that poor kids often face barriers outside their control, like lack of a quiet place to study or even trouble getting to school. All right. I I remember I did not like getting a bad report card. Nobody likes getting a bad report card. But what do we know about how grades are affecting students in the long term? So they have many effects. Research shows that grades are a much better predictor of how one does in college than test scores. And then there's the expert that I talked to. His name is Joe Feldman. He's a former principal, and he wrote a book called Grading for Equity. This is what he had to say. Students won't say things like, I've struggled in math. They'll say, I'm a D student in math. And when students, particularly at the early grades, receive grades, they internalize very deeply not only um, who they are now, but who they are potentially in the future. And in Chicago, if you have good grades, it can mean that you have a chance to get into an accelerated junior high program or even an elite selective enrollment high school. So what are the solutions? I, I don't really think anyone's arguing that kids who don't deserve good grades should just be given them. An expert from the University of Chicago told me, We should see bad grades as a signal that a child needs more support. We often blame the child or even the parent if a kid gets a bad grades, but we don't sort of bring in the Calvary to help the child. Right now, with more students getting bad grades, I don't think the answer is to just inflate grades, but rather to figure out how schools can help these kids be successful. That's WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. To learn more about grading in Chicago public schools, you can go to WBEZ.org. This is WBEZ. It's a common perception that white evangelical families are most likely to homeschool their children, but a growing number of black families have started teaching their kids at home, especially during the pandemic. Kyra Miles from member station WBHM reports on why some of those families in Alabama are taking their children's education into their own hands. 
Once it set in for Dide Keju Griffin that her kids wouldn't be going back to public school in March 2020. I don't know. It was like a light bulb moment. And ultimately, what I realized is that the pandemic just gave us an opportunity to do what we needed to do anyway, which is homeschooling. Three things made Griffin decide to start. First, she wanted to protect her kids from racism and bullies. She also wanted them to understand their cultural history. And number three, it's our freedom. I want to have time to cultivate my children's African-American, their Nigerian history and culture in them first before anybody tries to tell them who they are. She says COVID might have been her catalyst for homeschooling. But it has not been the reason that we kept going. The Census Bureau reported that in April 2020, 3% of Black households homeschooled their children. And by October that same year, it was up to 16%. Those numbers might not be completely accurate because a lot of kids were learning at home in 2020. So the census clarified its survey question partway through that period. But even so, Joyce Burgess, who founded the National Black Home Educators, says thousands of families have joined that organization since 2020. I think you're going to see more and more parents, Black parents, homeschooling their children like never before. Homeschooling in Black households can be its own unique form of activism. Cheryl Field-Smith is a professor at the University of Georgia. She studies how Black mothers use homeschooling as a form of resistance. We are combating the leftovers from slavery, this idea of white supremacy and the inferiority of Black people lingers today. We are overcoming racism through homeschooling. I don't think white people can say that. Take school discipline. Data from the U.S. Department of Education in 2014 found that Black students were suspended at three times the rate of white students. Jennifer Duckworth co-founded the Black Homeschoolers of Birmingham so more homeschooling families of color could find and support each other. The African-American and the African culture, we are the culture that has been homeschooling our children since the beginning. And so I feel like it's just in our DNA. For a long time, the country put up barriers that made it hard for Black people to get an education. So learning was always a community effort. Duckworth has three kids, and she's been homeschooling them for several years already. They participate in a lot of the Black homeschooling group's activities, like the debate club and field trips. The group has helped Duckworth's 10-year-old son, Alexander, make new friends. It just feels great to be around kids like me, so you don't always have to be alone, like the odd person out. Last month, the group held its first homeschooling summit. Duckworth says in just three years, the Black homeschoolers of Birmingham has grown from two families to 70. For NPR News, I'm Kyra Miles in Birmingham. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on Black Americans from colonial times to the present. If you open a medical textbook today, the pictures on those pages will tell you a story of their own, a story that is largely about white people. Nearly every diagram in medical literature depicts someone Caucasian, which is why a diagram of a pregnant black woman has caught the attention of people around the world. The person who drew that image is my next guest. Chitabere Ibe is a medical illustrator. He's also about to begin studying to become a pediatric neurosurgeon. He's in Lagos, Nigeria. Chitabere Ibe, hello. 
Hello. Nice being on the show today. It's great to have you. Where did this idea come from? How did you decide that, that creating uh, medical diagrams that feature black people was something that, that you wanted to do? So the idea came from my mentor, Dr. Orrish Sydney. I realized that there were no black illustrations, which made it difficult for me to learn and to teach myself because I'm a self-taught medical illustrator. So in the joint of learning, I reached out to him and said, oh, these drawings are in white skin. So he said, oh, fantastic. So let's work towards making them black skin. When you looked through those diagrams and you saw the lack of racial diversity, what went through your mind when, when you initially saw that? I mean, it ought not to be so, because first of all, it made learning for me very difficult. When I was learning, I had no reference point. I had nothing to, to use as a reference point, and which made it very difficult for me. And also, in my process of learning, I took a couple of courses online. Then I realized that in the public health sector, that the community health workers use white illustrations to make advocacies in rural communities here in Nigeria or even in Africa at large. And it really caught my attention because it ought not to be so, because you are educating these local women in the villages and you're using white illustrations to educate them. I mean, there's so much of a communication gap there. I really felt that, oh, this should be something I should work towards addressing. A communication gap. Tell me more about that, why it is that you think it's important that these sorts of illustrations feature a, a range of, of skin colors? Because medical students are trained to better diagnosing. Community health workers are trained to better at advocating or educating people out there. But yet the resources and materials used for training are not sufficient enough to advocate. For example, here in Nigeria, in local communities, women cannot speak proper English. They, they do not understand English at all. But the medical literatures used to educate these local women are drawing white skin. I mean, there's so much of a communication gap there. The drawing should be in black skin. And of course, you're able to represent their color and their skin so that even if they do not understand English, they should be able to see themselves in this drawing. And of course, better understand. And also for medical student training, when they are being trained in medical school, for example, here in Nigeria, all medical textbooks here in Nigeria are all in white skin. And the students just study them just to pass their exams, but do not study them to know them. And of course, this in turn affects their, their interest in learning. And that has also in turn affected the doctor and patient communication. For example, I would say, if a patient comes to the clinic and has some skin condition and the patient is a black person, the doctor, which is not trained to diagnose these conditions on a black skin, doesn't know how to respond to this patient. So that is how this drawing causes so much lacuna in communication. So if people don't see themselves in these images, then, then things get lost in translation and some ways can fall through the cracks. Yes, definitely. What was it like for you... You make these drawings, and then what, what was your expectation? I mean, how far did you think that they were going to go? Where did you think they would end up? I didn't expect that to go very viral because I had posted a whole lot of drawings over the year. When I posted them, I said, oh, more of this should be included in medical literature. More of this should be included in medical textbooks. I mean, it was just me speaking of what I believed in. I knew that eventually, that even if the world didn't hear this, that I would produce textbooks, publish them for free, I mean, that would be also a good way that this message would have gone out viral. So I'm happy that it went viral and the world is hearing the message. They've gone all over the world. I mean, what is that like for you? It's, it's really overwhelming because I didn't expect that, but the change is already here. And it's, it's to make maximum use of this opportunity and to keep on advocating for what I believe in. What have you heard back from people um, in terms of a response to seeing themselves in these diagrams when they, were, they normally would, would see somebody who doesn't look like them? 
Yes, um, I had a whole lot of comments. People said things like, 50 years in the health sector, I had never seen a black drum before. People had literally called me and expressed their deep felt pains, and I sincerely resonated with them. I mean, this is how much bias has caught deep into the system, and it's amazing that people could literally call and cry and say that they could feel alive again, they could, they could feel seen and heard again to that drawing. That's why it's amazing that this comment really, really went deep to my heart because it's not just about people in the health sector, but people wanting to be heard and seen. Why do you think it took so long for people to be heard and seen, as you say? People didn't take that as something very important. I mean, the issue of inclusion, diversity, has always not been a big topic for a very long time. People have always laid that aside. But I tell you, if these things were initiated or ensued over time, for example, if our fathers or our historians, those that studied medical illustrations, had considered including these drawings earlier in medical literature, equal healthcare delivery to everybody, to the people of color, to the BIPOC, it would have been out there over time. You're about to go off and study to be a neurosurgeon. Why do you want to be a neurosurgeon? All right. Um, I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon first because I love children a lot. And um, I have seen children go through a lot of pains. And um, why I want to be a neurosurgeon is because I love how complex the brain is. And I also want to be a pediatric um, neuro-oncologist because my mom died of cancer. And that's because the healthcare in Nigeria was, wasn't sufficient enough to provide her good healthcare that should have saved her life. And I want to be able to provide that healthcare to everybody, to children out there of my age, and you're much younger than me, that cannot um, take the pains of seeing their loved ones being lost. So I want to be able to provide that healthcare that I was never, I was never um, provided of, or I had never had privilege of, of, of seeing. You've already made a huge contribution to the medical field before you're even in med school. It's quite, uh, it's quite something. Congratulations, and thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Chidiobere Ibe is a medical illustrator in Nigeria and soon to be a medical student. He's off to study pediatric neurosurgery. White supremacy is the sickness. Some residents of Colorado cannot get into a hospital when they need to. That's because the hospital beds are filled with people who chose to go unvaccinated during the pandemic. Patients who need care for other issues have no space. They're speaking out now, as are nurses who report a medical system near collapse. Colorado Public Radio's John Daly reports. 60-year-old Harold Birch lives in rural Delta County, Colorado, and battles a cascade of health problems. It's been a real rodeo, so to say, I guess. You know, it's been a lot of ups and downs. Birch suffers from osteo and rheumatoid arthritis and has had two major intestinal surgeries. I can't leave the house. I need to be right near a restroom all the time. I haven't ate anything substantial, probably going on three weeks now. Birch had to wait that long to be seen by a primary care doctor who said, If things were different, I would tell you to go to the hospital and be diagnosed, have some tests run, and see what's going on with you. But he says, as of today, the Elder County Hospital is clearful. There are no beds available. COVID-19 means most of the region's ICU beds are full. Fewer than 60 percent of county residents have had one or more shots. Birch is fully vaccinated, but wants to avoid the hospital if he can. It's really frustrating because I did the right thing, like so many other people have. And we're being just kind of like told, you know, well, 
unless you have a really serious problem like a heart attack, a stroke, you're going to have a baby or, you know, something like that. You know, we really, we don't have time to mess with you. It's just wrong, John. It's just wrong. Birch's situation is common in Colorado lately, as the state faces its second-worst COVID-19 surge for hospitalizations and deaths. Hospitals are under tremendous strain, and that means delays and changes from normal care, as strap providers do more with less. 72-year-old retiree Diane Cullen is over it. What I said to the doctor was, idiots who won't get vaccinated. Cullen lives closer to big city hospitals and had hernia surgery planned. She got frustrated and angry when her doctor told her it would have to be postponed for weeks. Absolutely. I mean, he flat out told me we can't even do it because of too many COVID patients. Too many COVID patients and a shortage of staff have pushed hospitals into crisis. Robin Wittenstein is CEO of Denver Health, which runs one of the state's biggest hospital and clinic systems. They're coming into hospitals now sicker than ever before, and they're coming in larger numbers than we've ever seen before. Our system is on the brink of collapse. Over at the Academic Medical Center, UC Health, ICU Dr. Abby Lara says the crush of unvaccinated patients means delays in care or patients don't get much-needed diagnostic tests. Patients who could have survived something, they had their life cut short because they weren't able to access care. Half the state's hospitals anticipate a staffing shortage in the next week. And when there are too many patients being treated by too few staff, Laura says, that ratchets up the difficulty for providers. I just worry that there's going to be not only a lot of turnover in the near future, but I think that access to health care is just going to get even worse in the future. Laura believes the effects of the pandemic will be felt long after it fades. I appreciate that you don't want to see the sky is falling. The sky isn't falling, but the sky is going to turn a very different color. Recently, nurses protested the demands they're facing at an event across the street from Longmont United Hospital, north of Denver. They held signs reading, Patients First in the Hospital. Critical care nurse Stephanie Chrisley told a crowd that normally an RN would care for two ventilated, sedated critical care patients. In the last few weeks, we have regularly had RNs taking three and sometimes four patients at a time. That's unsafe, she says, and the nurses are looking to unionize. Longmont United says it is focused on the well-being of patients and staff, and its top priority is high-quality care. Chrisley, a mother of two, says nurses need more hands on deck. And I have lately been in a state of chronic stress over the crushing guilt that I feel to ensure my patients get the care they need and yet somehow still care for myself and my family. Chris Kloster has been a nurse for 32 years, much of that in the ICU. Since the pandemic hit, she's had to deal with colleagues quitting, restrictions on visitors, worries about catching the virus, coping with suffering and deaths. She says it's been soul-sucking. I was like, that is the hardest job. That's the hardest I've ever worked. And um, this isn't sustainable. This kind of staffing, this kind of stress is not sustainable. Something has to change. The stress is obvious to patients, like Rob Blesson from Fort Collins, who spent 30 days in an ICU with COVID. You know, there was just so many people there. 
you know, uh, and very few staff. Respiratory therapists are in short supply in hospitals, and Blessin says as more coronavirus patients got admitted, staff struggled to keep up. So often you'd have people from different departments, uh, you know, being trained on the fly. So there's a lot of pressure on people. They're just trying to get more bodies in there. He says he saw doctors and nurses work overtime, nine, ten days in a row, pinch hitting for each other. He calls them heroic. They saved my life. I do feel grateful for everything they did. Blessin says he landed in the hospital because he was swayed by Internet misinformation and didn't get vaccinated. It's a decision he came to regret. I guess my recommendation is would be to get vaxxed, you know, even if you're totally against it. And don't fall into the internet hype. He says he's planning to get vaccinated now, and Colorado's hospitalization numbers are starting to trend in a more positive direction. But there are still many places in the country with too few staff to handle the latest surge of patients, nearly all of whom have not taken COVID vaccines. For NPR News, I'm John Daly in Denver. A human being will get concussed at 60 Gs. A common Head-to-head contact on a football field? 100 Gs. God did not intend for us to play football. And now new information about former NFL, about a former NFL player who died earlier this year by suicide after allegedly shooting and killing six people. He had the severe brain disease known as CTE. Those were the findings announced today by leading neurologists who examined Philip Adams after he died. It's just the latest death of a former professional football player with CTE. Steve Harrison of member station WFAE reports. Philip Adams was a journeyman NFL cornerback who played for six teams in six years before his career ended in 2015. He returned to his hometown of Rock Hill, South Carolina, where he struggled adjusting to a life without football. Last April, police said he shot and killed a prominent physician, his wife and two of their grandchildren, as well as two workers at their home. They then said Adams went home and killed himself. Boston University neurologist Anne McKee said Adams, who was 32 years old, had stage 2 CTE, which she said is, quote, unusually severe for someone his age. It was different in that it was unusually severe in both frontal lobes. In its frontal lobe predominance, Adams' CTE pathology was similar to that of another young NFL player, namely Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez is a former NFL tight end with the New England Patriots who was found guilty of murder in 2015. He later killed himself in prison. McKee says CTE is caused by diagnosed concussions, but also repeated less severe blows to the head that happen routinely in football. Severe frontal lobe pathology might have contributed to Adam's behavioral abnormalities in addition to physical, psychiatric, and psychosocial factors. At the time of his death, Adams had prescription and over-the-counter drugs in his system. Local police say they still don't know of a connection between Adams and the people he allegedly killed. At a news conference, Lisa McHale with the Legacy Concussion Foundation read a statement from Adams' family, who had asked for his brain to be examined. We cannot say that we are surprised by these results. However, it is shocking to hear how severe his condition was. 
The NFL agreed five years ago to a $1 billion settlement with former players who said playing football damaged their brains. The league had hoped the agreement, along with other safety measures in practice and in games, would take the spotlight off CTE. But Adam's diagnosis raises more questions about how safe it really is to play football. For NPR News, I'm Steve Harrison in Charlotte. There's another incident here in Chicago of a uh, video that was just released uh, earlier this week. Apparently, it was a video of a raid that happened uh, back in February of 2019. And the raid took place at the apartment of a 50-year-old non-white black woman named Anjanette Young. Now, apparently, in this video, um, it shows uh, white police officers uh, busting down this woman's door uh, while she was actually naked. Uh, she uh, uh, apparently she's a social worker. She was she was home for the night, uh, was getting ready to change clothes and go to bed, and then uh, race soldiers came in and busted down her door, and uh, apparently off of a warrant. But apparently the warrant uh, had the had the address of the apartment next door. So the race soldiers got the wrong apartment. Uh, it was apparently a warrant for uh, somebody next door who was a felon who uh, informant said that uh, he had a weapon. But these race soldiers busted down the wrong apartment, uh, basically traumatized this woman because she was uh, in, you know, she, she wasn't clothed. It took them about a good 20 minutes before somebody gave her a blanket uh, well, they actually handcuffed her, gave her a blanket to cover her. You know, she's screaming hysterically because you have these race soldiers pointing guns at her. Uh, she's telling them it's the wrong apartment, it's the wrong apartment. Uh, the woman has no connection with the person next door, so I don't know how they got that wrong. Uh, it took them about a good hour to figure out that it was the wrong apartment. Uh, there's also a video, a dash cam video of that as well, where one of the race soldiers basically said, you know, we got the wrong apartment. And after all of that, after about a, uh, an hour and 10 minutes, they finally asked this woman, what was her name? Well, Chicago is set to pay $2.9 million to Anjanette Young in a lawsuit over that botched police raid on her home back in 2019. City Council members gave initial approval to the settlement this afternoon. WGN's political reporter Tamon Bradley is live on the South Side with more. Lourdes and Ben, good afternoon. Today, City Council acknowledged it's time to try to right a wrong. After a closed-door meeting yesterday, today a first vote to approve a settlement for Anjanette Young. Anjanette Young, the woman at the center of this humiliating and frightening 2019 botched police raid, is one step closer to settling her lawsuit against the city. Today, the City Council Finance Committee signed off on a $2.9 million payment. All parties have agreed to uh, Ms. Young and her council in the city of $2.9 million. Mayor Lightfoot says she's comfortable with the agreement. We all saw that horrific video. We all saw um, the way in which she was treated. And I've made extensive comments about it um, from the time that I saw it um, and uh, into this, the early part of this year. I think it's a good thing 
uh, that this matter is resolved. It's been almost one year since video of the errant raid came out making national headlines. City lawyers initially requested sanctions against Young and then her lawyers for sharing the video with the press. The request was later dropped. At first, Mayor Lightfoot claimed she had no knowledge of the matter before walking that statement back after a review of internal emails showed a top aide brought the raid to her attention. The fallout for Lightfoot in the city was enormous. The mayor personally apologized to Young. Corporation Council Mark Flesner resigned and CPD revised its policy on raids. We need to heal from this and move forward. The older people unanimously endorsed the payment to Young, but some are not happy. In my opinion, it feels as though this settlement is not enough. My heart of heart tells me that this is insufficient. The settlement now heads to the full city council for approval, but for approval. But there are many questions about the raid and the city's handling of it that remain. There's an IG report that still has not been released, and also a private law firm is investigating the matter. That report also has not been issued. We are live tonight uh, from Bronzeville. Tamon Bradley, WGN News. All right, Tamon, thank you. Listen. Just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. Testimony wrapped up this afternoon in the trial of former officer Kimberly Potter, who's charged in the killing of Dante Wright during a traffic stop in April. The final day of evidence included Potter's testimony in her own defense. Our reporter John Collins has been covering the case and joins us with uh, today's developments. John, good afternoon. Hey, Tom. The defense attorneys made it clear that Potter would testify. She has the choice not to, of course, right? But we didn't know what she would say. So what did her testimony cover? She's a witness for the defense. So a defense attorney, Earl Gray, started out, and he walked Potter through her life, her marriage, her family, and her career in law enforcement, and then on to the events of April 11th from the traffic stop of uh, Dante Wright to when Potter was taken to the Brooklyn Center uh, precinct after the, the shooting. And here Potter is describing the fear she testified she saw in the face of one of her partners after a failed arrest of Wright as they struggled to get him back out of the car. We were trying to keep him from driving away. It just, it just went chaotic. I, it, and then I remember yelling, "Taser, taser, taser!" And nothing happened. And then he told me I shot him. And Potter had been pretty composed up until that point in her testimony. Now, how did the prosecution cross-examine her? Prosecutor Aaron Eldridge uh, really tried to hit home their basic points, that Potter was very experienced as a cop in stressful situations. Uh, she was experienced with a taser and underwent 
regular trainings where she was warned about the the danger of confusing her weapons. And then they also went through the events of that day. And Potter testified that there were lots of moments she didn't remember, but prosecutor Aaron Eldridge really zoomed in on whether Wright presented any threat. You never saw a weapon uh, on Mr. Wright, did you? No. Never saw a gun? No. He never threw a punch, right? No. Never kicked anyone? No. Never said, I'm going to kill you? No. Never said, I'm going to shoot you? No. Never said, there's a gun in the car and I'm coming after you? No. Okay. So what was the response to Potter's testimony in the courtroom, especially during those emotional moments like the one we heard uh, a moment ago? Yeah, there's very lim- limited seating in there, but our pool reporter said Potter's husband, himself a, a former cop, didn't have any notable response to her testimony. And jurors also didn't seem to respond, although some of them were taking notes. Uh, Dante Wright's parents, at least for the first part of the hearing, were holding hands in the back of the courtroom. And at times, uh, Wright's mother, Katie Bryant, w- was crying. And Potter herself uh cried multiple times during her testimony. So it was a pretty emotional day in court for all the parties. The defense also had an expert witness who testified. Uh, Tell us about him and what he said. He's a psychologist uh, based in Florida named Lawrence Miller, and he has testified in lots of trials, mostly for police. And people might be surprised to hear this, but expert witnesses get paid during trials for both sides. And Miller said on the stand that uh, he's going to earn $30,000 for his work on this trial. But he argued that there's a psychological phenomenon called slip and capture. Essentially, it's when you intend to do one thing, but a more routine action unconsciously takes over. And prosecutors really pressed him on how credible this theory is and why it should apply to police officers. And at one point, the prosecutor referred to it as, quote, junk science. And the reason this matters is jurors are going to be asked to decide whether Potter behaved recklessly or whether shooting Dante Wright was, as the defense is arguing, just an innocent mistake. All right, testimony over today. What's the next step in this trial, John? The judge is going to give instructions to the jury on Monday morning, and that's basically just explaining the laws that jurors are going to need to consider as they deliberate. And then attorneys will make their closing arguments after that, jurors will be sequestered in a hotel while they deliberate, and they could reach consensus quickly, or it could take days and days, and we're, we're going to be camped out in downtown Minneapolis just waiting for their decision. Our John Collins covering the Kimberly Potter trial testimony ended today. Thank you, John. Thank you. I would like the locks changed again in the morning. And you know what? You might mention that we'd appreciate it if next time they didn't send a gang member. A gang member. Yes, yes. Well, you mean that kid in there? Yes, the guy in there with the shaved head, the pants around his oh, ass, the prison tattoo. Those are not prison tattoos. Oh, really? And he's not going to go sell our key to one of his gangbanger friends the moment he is out our We've door. We've had a really tough night. I think it would be best if you just went upstairs right and now. And what? Wait for them to break in? I just had a gun pointed in my face. You lower your voice. And it was my fault because I knew it was going to happen. But if a white person sees two black men walking towards her and she turns and walks in the other direction, she's a racist, right? Well, I got scared and I didn't say anything. And 10 seconds later, I had a gun in my face. Now, I am telling you, your amigo in there is going to sell our key to one of his homies. And this time it'd be really fucking great if you acted like you actually gave a shit. 
Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. A city Lafayette, a Lafayette City Court judge, I should say, is being called to resign after a video admittedly taken in her home contained racial slurs. Judge Michelle Oldney said that she and her family were the victims of an armed burglary at their home this past Saturday. 59-year-old Ronald Handy was arrested and charged with two counts of simple burglary. Lafayette Police Sergeant Paul Mouton confirmed with News 10 Handy did not have a weapon when he was arrested. But the story developed yesterday when a video surfaced with the N-word being used by a man and woman amid laughter while surveillance video was being watched. Judge Odenay said at the time of the video, she was on sedative and has no recollection of the recording or the language used in it. However, not everyone is convinced, and some leaders are asking for more from the judge. News 10's Nils Rang is in studio and shares their reactions. Neil. Thanks, Dalfred. And everyone, if you have not seen this video yet on social media, it's not great listening. And it was very difficult for Lafayette City Marshal Reggie Thomas, who works to protect the judge every day. When you go to court and you know somebody has, they have uh, said those type of words, you cannot be comfortable in court thinking that somebody is going to treat you correctly. So this is a problem. This is a major problem. City Marshal Reggie Thomas is the first African-American elected in a citywide seat in Lafayette. When he heard about the video circulating online and thought he heard racial slurs from Judge Odenay's mouth, it hurt him. A weak apology will not suffice. When called about the video, Judge Odenay emailed us a statement. She said, the incident shook me to my core and my mental state was fragile. I was a wreck and am still unable to sleep. I was given a sedative at the time of the video. I have zero recollection of the video and the disturbing language used during it. Anyone who knows me and my husband knows this is contrary to the way we live our lives. I am deeply sorry and ask for your forgiveness and understanding as my family and I deal with this emotional aftermath of this armed burglary. As the report spread, so is the outcry. The Lafayette NAACP president asked for Judge Odenay's resignation, even that her decisions concerning people of color be rescinded. State Senator Gerald Boudreaux is requesting the Judiciary Commission of Louisiana investigate, as well as Louisiana Black Caucus. There's nothing funny about what my ancestors went through. Who will call that word? There's nothing funny about it. Let's respect those who were beaten, who they took the fire hoses out. So that's what it brings up. That's the hatred that it brings up. And so, do people feel comfortable? No, they don't. None of the people behind the voices heard on the video can be seen as the camera is pointing directly at a screen showing security footage of the break in attempt. But after Judge Odenay's response to the burglary and recording, some just can't accept nothing being done about it. True character is shown in the worst of times. We could talk about apologies, we could talk about resignations. But I think what we have to talk about is accountability. Don't make excuses for something you did. Mayor President Josh Guillory also released a statement this afternoon concerning Judge Odenay and a video. It reads, quote, I am disgusted and appalled by the recent reports involving a local judge. This type of language is hurtful, divisive, and unacceptable. The fairness and objectivity of our courts are the foundation of our legal system. It is my hope that the judge will do what is best to help the community heal and move forward. End quote. Judge O'Neill was not at work today. She gave no indication in her statement that she would be stepping down from her position. Niels Rang, KLY News 10. We are men.
can do it. We have to do it. We are men. It is a man thing. Men must find and conquer as much pussy as they can get. Do not think for two seconds that you don't... That's why, for example, Eddie Murphy's raw fascinated me. So, I mean, when he, when he says, you know, in that film that a woman doesn't want to hear that you love her, she wants to know that you, you will fuck her to death, and he's doing that. You know, and in the audience, when I saw that black men were giving black power salutes, and I was thinking, damn... This is just so serious. This idea that, you know, we need to reclaim the space of that erect, brutalizing phallus as our identity as a people. And the trailblazing black feminist scholar and activist Bell Hooks died Wednesday at the age of 69. She was a prolific author who wrote about how a person's race, gender, and social class are interconnected, often referred to the, quote, imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Born Gloria Jean Watkins, Bell Hooks wrote more than 40 books, including the 1981 book Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism, which took its title from the speech by abolitionist Sojourner Truth. Bell Hooks was a longtime educator, most recently a distinguished professor at Berea College in her home state of Kentucky, which created the Bell Hooks Institute as a center for her writing and teaching. Bell Hooks died at her home in Kentucky, surrounded by family and friends. Her family says her cause of death was end-stage renal failure. We'll talk more about her life and legacy with her close friend of more than 40 years, Beverly Guy Sheft-Hall, former president of the National Women's Studies Association and women's studies professor at Spelman. But first, let's hear Bell in her own words, speaking in 2006 at the University of Oregon when she gave the keynote address at the Women of Color Conference. Committed to the struggle to end domination in all its forms since my teenage years, in midlife I find myself constantly seeking to understand why we have heightened awareness about the suffering caused by exploitation and oppression, both in our nation and in the world. Yet this awareness has not inspired us all to move towards the collective action needed to bring peace, love, and healing. In my 20s and early 30s, I was most obsessed with finding words to explain systems of domination, to critique, and to find a voice to express militant resistance. My voice was at times shrill and piercing, full of the pain, feelings of powerlessness in gender coupled with awareness of the chokehold dominator culture had on my consciousness. In those days, that voice was often interpreted by the status quo as angry, and more often than not, too angry to be worthy of being listened to or heard. Allies in struggle, liberal and progressive, were often eager and still are to portray people of color coming to voice as always and only angry. For radical white folks who had not fully unlearned their racialized sexism, their projected image of an angry black woman letting it all hang out was often superimposed over the reality of voices that were simply boldly speaking truth to power. Ellen Herman, who teaches here in the history department, was the editor of my very first book, Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism? And I remember the day that she called me and said, you know, we really want to publish your book, but we feel that it's so angry. And I said, well, Ellen, you know, I can't accept that. 
It wasn't anger that I was feeling when I wrote this book. It was the keenness of insight. It was the clarity of truth-telling. It was the power of breaking out of the bondage of oppression and exploitation. We have to think about why, when people of color find our voice, white people so often can only hear that voice as an angry voice. The acclaimed feminist scholar and activist Bell Hooks, speaking in 2006 at the University of Oregon, when she gave the keynote address at the Women of Color Conference and read from some of her recent writing. Bell Hooks died Wednesday. She was the author of more than 40 books, ranging from essays and poetry to children's books, such as Skin Again. In 2000, she published the book All About Love, New Visions and wrote, quote, "...it is essential to our struggle for self-determination that we speak of love, for love is a necessary foundation enabling us to survive the wars, the hardships, the sickness, and the dying with our spirits intact. It is love that allows us to survive whole." For more, we're joined by her dear friend, Beverly Guy Sheftal. She is the former president of National Women's Studies Association, professor of women's studies at Spelman College. First of all, Professor Guy Sheftal, our condolences on the loss of your close friend, Bell Hooks. Thank you very much, Amy. And I am really happy to be here. And I loved that particular speech that you all uh, quoted from. Talk about your friend and the icon, the um, African feminist, African-American feminist trailblazer, Bell Hooks. First, her name. Talk about how she kept it in lowercase and why she chose to take that name, Bell Hooks. So, uh, Bell Hooks uh, chose the name of her great-grandmother, Bell Hooks, because she learned from family and other members of the small rural Hopkinsville community in Kentucky that her great-grandmother was fierce and always talking back. And so rather than attach her name to her books, she wanted to create some distance between me, the author, and the words. And, and the choice of Bell Hooks, her great-grandmother, which she put in lowercase letters, uh, said to us that it is not me, Gloria Watkins, uh, who is the most important. It's what these words are. And the model of my great-grandmother, Bell Hooks, who stays in my consciousness. And the, 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 the small letters also captured, I think, uh, Bell Hooks's always transgressive oppositional self. So I'm not going to even use capital letters. I'm not going to use my name. I'm going to use my transgressive great-grandmother's name on those books. Can you talk about Bell Hooks' life and the message she felt which was so important to understand? The first thing I'll say about Bell Hooks is that she was always the teacher. I mean, we, we know she was a professor uh, at many, many um, places, Oberlin College. Berea, where she uh, spent her last 20 years as a teacher, as a professor. She had a PhD in English, where she wrote a dissertation on Toni Morrison. 
But fundamentally, she was a teacher. And by teacher, I meant she believed that her audience was broader than the academy or broader than higher education. And she wanted to reach the largest number of people, regular people, young boys, children that she could. And she wanted to have the broadest impact on the broadest amount of people. And so when I think of Bell Hooks, I think about her primarily as a teacher. And she was very much impacted by teachers. Uh, she was very much impacted, for example, by the uh, Buddhist uh, person, um, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, and I think that she saw herself in some ways as, as, as a person who would sit with, sit with young people and community people and students and help them understand this world in which we live, which is full of all kinds of domination. So I see her as a teacher. She was hard hitting. She was sometimes merciless in her critiques. She was unrelenting. She was courageous. She was in your face, but she was also gentle. And I'm, I'm, I was just listening to that sort of soft voice gentle spirit, passionate, and um, always, always trying to uh, tell the truth from her perspective. You know, I got a chance to interview her um, and asked her—it was to remember Paulo Freire. Uh, the great educator who wrote uh, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, where she also laid out her philosophy of education. This is Bell Hooks. In our culture, so often people teach um, beliefs, values, ideas that have no relationship to how they live their lives. And each of the many times that I saw Paolo, I saw him exemplify again and again um, a, a unity between theory and praxis, and that in, has inspired me both as an intellectual and as a teacher to want to have that kind of unity, to believe that it, to, and to know that it's not a dream or a fantasy, but that you can um, teach by, by, by being in the world as much as you can by the books you write. If you can talk about that and also her talking about white capitalist, um, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, Professor Guy Sheftal. You know, it might it, it might be good to, to, re, to remind all of us that to have black people love themselves, that is a radical act in the U.S. context. And it wasn't, it's not just black women. She wanted little black boys to love themselves. She wanted little black girls with so-called nappy hair to love themselves, which is why she wrote that book about uh, 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 being nappy. So we might think about love as a sort of innocuous, trivial, non-political project, but she knew that loving ourselves, all people, but particularly people of color and black people in the U.S. to love ourselves is a radical political act. And um, that's one of the people's favorite books all about love, because I think uh, we understood that, that if you don't love yourself, if you don't engage in self-love, you cannot possibly change the world. And so that was an extremely important intervention uh, in terms of her, 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 her writings.
her constant naming of imperial white supremacist patriarchy, which can also be framed if we borrow Kimberly Crenshaw's term intersectionality. Bell didn't use the term intersectionality. She wanted us to hear imperial white supremacist patriarchy, and later she added heteropatriarchy, because she wanted to name what that was. But it is essentially the concept of intersectionality, which goes back to the 19th century, black women such as Mariah Stewart and Ida B. Wells. And so she never stopped saying it. Imperial, white supremacist, heteropatriarchy, because she wanted us to hear it over and over and over again so that we could eradicate it. And as you talked about children loving themselves, particularly black children. She wrote that acclaimed children's book, Skin Again, beautifully illustrated by Chris Rashka. The book reads, in part, the skin I'm in is just a covering. It cannot tell my story. If you want to know who I am, you have to come inside and open your heart way wide. Professor. Yes. She also—her favorite children's book was B-Boy Buzz, which she talked about a lot. And you have a little more protagonist. And she talked about the fact that the publishers were sort of reluctant uh, to have a little black boy protagonist. But of course, she insisted, in the same way as she described earlier, insisting uh, to those publishers of that very first book that uh, she was not angry, uh, she was committed, and she always, again, insisted lived the life that she wanted to live, uh, lived it on her own terms. And that was with book publishers, her employers, her family, her partners, and her friends. Beverly Guy Sheftal, I want to thank you so much for uh, remembering Bell Hooks. It's hard to say remembering. She died just this week at the age of 69. The Man Knot. Race, race, class, class genre, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. The family of a Grinnell man who was killed last September traveled from New York, Texas, and Florida to attend the trial. Stephen Vogel is on trial for first-degree murder and abuse of corpse. Prosecutors believe that he beat and then strangled Michael Williams to death and then left his burning body in a ditch. Prosecutors say Vogel killed Williams out of jealousy and anger toward Williams' relationship with the defendant's girlfriend. Williams' family is calling this a hate crime. KCRG TV 9's Libby Randall reports on the second day of trial. He was a friendly person. He wasn't a hateful person. Michael Williams' family says they want people to remember Michael Williams for who he was and not how he died. He was a jokester. And, you know, I mean, he was the life of a party. He loved to dance, loved the party, and he loved his kids. But as the second day of the trial came to an end, they also want to bring attention to the details of his gruesome murder. From what I hear from the uh, prosecution and the evidence, he was hit from the back, the back of the head with a baseball bat more than one time. William's father says he was strangled by hanging. Being hung. It's a lynching. The family is calling it a hate crime. Investigators say it was not, and that the crime was fueled by jealousy. This is a monster inside of this courtroom. William's cousin, Linda Nash, recounts watching the defendant in the courtroom. He is showing very minimum, if any, remorse, emotion, any of those things there. 
and that's not right. She says they hope this trial will provide them with closure, but also hopes to change the way a hate crime is defined in Iowa. Justice needs to be done. Laws should be amended and changed, and that can be done. We just have to work together in order to do it. The trial will continue Tuesday morning with closing arguments. In Sagerney, Libby Randall, KCRG TV 9 News. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, December 18, 2021. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, questions, counter racist suggestions. The number to dial 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Many things to get to. Try to uh, get through it as quickly as possible. Get to the callers. Uh, For one, we'll be here tomorrow. uh, Our Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Last one of the 2021 calendar year. Uh, We'll check in with folks different parts uh, of the world. Uh, I'm eager for tomorrow. Uh, One of our listeners was I guess contemplate or maybe many not sure at least one was contemplating uh, going to Europe for the holidays beginning of the new year so called uh, check out things you know do some touring uh, and I said man I don't from all the reports that I've seen matter of fact the report that I saw today they just this week like within the last 48 hours allegedly arrested someone who was plotting an assassination of an elected official because they were upset about the COVID-19 policies, restrictions as it were. Uh, So uh, amidst lots of other, you know, talk, increasing restrictions and more punitive actions and lockdowns and all the rest of it. When we spoke with African 1884, he's in Austria, which is pretty close to Germany, relatively. we spoke with him in November and they were on lockdown then uh, it's supposed to last at least 30 days or so so I would be very hesitant uh, about doing any sort of traveling period excuse me I felt like I got a hair got stuck in my throat like something crazy was going on uh, I would be leery about doing any sort of traveling period but especially out of the country like that just uh, it would seem like that would open up to open yourself up to a lot of uh, risks uh, in terms of what are the policies going to be about testing and uh, are you going to have to go through customs and are you going to have to have proof of vaccination and all the rest of it and just it would seem like a lot of question marks especially over the next couple of months or so 
that's a suggestion but again we'll check in with folks in different parts of the world tomorrow to see what's happening what are you hearing about travel travel restrictions even tomorrow the time will be 3 p.m. Eastern 2 p.m. Central 12 p.m. Pacific global Sunday talk on racism invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio uh, when you hit the blog PayPal button is in the top right corner I think we're about a mm, couple days away see if I can be productive tomorrow after the global talk program uh, I'll have my review of King Richard that should be posted so folks can check that out as well but for now PayPal button is in the top right corner uh, directly beneath it you see the link uh, for PayPal cash app and Venmo uh, the link for cash app is cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows uh, huge thanks to all of the many investors all over the known universe who have supported uh, in the context of white supremacy if we make it to February 13 years hopefully a uh, decade plus uh, of mostly constructive information on what white supremacy racism is how it works uh, things non-white people can and should be doing to solve this problem immediately uh, you can also hit the wish list amazon.com listed under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, again, enormous gratitude to all the investors who have nabbed an item or four uh, over the past 12 plus years. Uh, hopefully we have been worthy of your time and life currency. Uh, getting to some of the things that stood out for the week. Number one, this was not in the news reports, but I wanted to make sure I shared it has been rainy. I think I said before it's been the worst weather in Seattle since I've been here, I think. Um, this And this is the worst time of year to be in Seattle anyway. Uh, this is the time of year when it is dark like all the time. It seems like the street lights are always on. Uh, if it's overcast if it rain if it's rainy which it is almost every day this time of year uh, I think it has been every day this week uh, it do, I've been saying it doesn't even get light like when the sun rises in the morning it's not bright I've been saying it just it's less dark it's been 11 a.m. and the street lights are still on it looks like you know it could be 6 a.m. like we're still waiting on the sun to rise and it's almost noon uh, and then by the time you get to 2 or 3 it's like oh yeah that's it for the daylight street lights are on and we're headed right on into dusk by because of the overcast so gray and everything we're headed into overcast and, and evening weather by 3 2 30 in the afternoon so this is this is pretty typical for Seattle even though it has been historically rainy this autumn all of that there was a meteor shower this week uh, mostly through I think the peak of it was Wednesday Wednesday uh, actually Tuesday Tuesday and Wednesday was the peak of the meteor shower uh, because there was a full moon as well this week uh, and so the brightness of the moon kind of blocked out being able to see some of the meteors I didn't think I would be able to see any of this any of the celestial events because it's been cloudy and rainy however Tuesday evening 
it rained quite a bit during the day was cloudy all of a sudden about nine ten o'clock the heavens parted crystal blue sky was right there you could catch all the stars and they said I think the peak was around 11 p.m. Pacific time and I happened to be standing outside at that very moment I looked up and meteors were just right there you just kind of had to gaze and hopefully be in a dark place had it not been rainy and winter time it would have been a great day to go to the beach because you don't have all the uh, distortion light uh, so you can get great views of the sky like oh just lay out in the sand but it is no longer summer anywho it was just awesome uh, the late great Maurice White told us keep your head to the sky uh, I think it is important the system of white supremacy can kind of daily pulverize victims of white supremacy so I think it is important to kind of be reminded that there are many events that are beyond the powers of racist man racist woman racist child uh, and I think people have been looking at the uh, these sort of events for centuries I mean thousands of years really uh, comets and meteor showers and all kinds of things so enjoy when the, the solar eclipse that's supposed to be coming up talked about that before enjoy especially if you have offspring great way to teach science and big universe out there let's see getting to some of the reports uh, they started with the California reparations task force and they were talking about how uh, they're going to look at different ways of reparations in the state of California for black people and how this is going to benefit everybody um, and they talked about how anti-black racism impacts everyone I'm of the opinion that that's not true because some of the folks they're not impacted because they're practicing anti-black racism so this is not a I'm impacted this I am practicing and enjoying telling Nigra jokes and beating on Marlene Pinnock and you know any other black people that come around incidentally when I heard all of this I thought remember Nat King Cole we read about Nat King Cole and the warmth of other sons cowbell Isabel Wilkerson uh, Nat King Cole when he moved to California and they didn't want him to have a house there remember they burned nigger in the yard and they killed his dog is that in the reparations package late Natalie Cole as well anywho uh, I just I heard that segment uh, we read Isabel Wilkerson's work both of them uh, the text that they mentioned which talk about California and reparations as well just and eh, you have to let me see when all of that works out uh, I can't imagine it being a check uh, if they're talking about repair and not doing these things in the future uh, no repetition I think they said wow I just uh, yeah it's difficult for me to take conversations if they were really serious they would just stop practicing racism white supremacy it wouldn't even have to we wouldn't have to sit down and have a reparations task force we'd just be about the business of justice next uh, let's see they in the segment where they talked about knocking down the houses that was also in uh, California they talked about expanding the highways and how black and brown 
that phrase again. In California, you probably would have a lot of non-white people who would be so-called uh, Latinos, uh, Hispanics, whatever term they want to put on it that I would say is incorrect, just other non-white people who are not classified as black. Um, but they talked about the expansion uh, of those highways uh, and how they had a really poor program to try to compensate and stop all of this and repair the damage for, from before uh, and how because there are a lot of dollars uh, that are unrestricted uh, from the build back better that they could take those dollars and use them to expand the highways, freeways and further displace racial dislocation more black people and again they said they appreciated at least how they looked at some of the details how they had some black families attempted families they were moved twice down in Florida retired firefighters area where we got moved one time and then they came back and expanded it and got moved again he talks about oh no 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 don't think that you're going to get you know be able to have a house to leave to someone and pass on and help that next generation and even for yourself, thinking that, oh, I'm stable and things are good. I know the area. I like the area. Keep those squatters on the move. Incidentally, I heard a report this week. They talked about Dr. Welsing. They talked about being in a quiet, stable environment is important for you to have imagination and creativity. Uh, when you're not, when you're in a noisy environment, it's not stable. It's hard for your creative energy to work effectively. No surprise at all. Dr. Welsing talked about that. Uh, next. Let's see. Uh, they talked about the housing appraisal which was also in California a black household they said when they went and it was just them they owned the house and did all the upgrades and everything houses valued at a million dollars pass it off to a white person their white friend they said I cringe they pass it to their white friend do the appraisal again 1.5 million dollars I think they the statistic that they gave was that black uh, I guess residential properties are undervalued consistently by an average of $48,000. The residents, the Austin residents that they talked about was valued by a half million dollars more just by adding a white face. So I don't know. Difficult to say in a system of uh, white supremacy, but I mean, it's all areas of people activity uh, and they use a lot of those same niggardly terms bias uh, and that sort of thing standard operating procedure even pop point out some of the other terms as I get to the metaphor aspect but uh, trying to be or being as direct as possible accurate with words is very important uh, in my opinion towards countering racism um, when they talked about when they talk about the school report, this was WBEZ. They talked about uh, black children's grades suffering uh, over the time of the COVID-19 pandemic for lots of different reasons. Talk about wording. They said with standardized tests, minority students, disadvantaged students face or they said now the report was titled black students said face entrenched challenges that make it difficult for them to score well I have no idea what that is entrenched challenges do you mean sometimes you have racist teachers 
racist instructors, racist institutions that won't even allow you inside and all kinds of other problems that contribute to black people not doing as well on the test, not to mention not having access to white teachers and what have you who can cheat get last year's test or this year's test so you know all the answers and can study really efficiently is that what you mean entrenched challenges that make it difficult for them to score well pussyfooting say that all the time uh, in that report also they talked about grades man the word one of my one I think is one of the more important terms with racism white supremacy discretion they talked about how there is no real uniform standard for assessing grades uh, and how that can end up playing a major role in why black students have grades that reflect you know maybe you know who knows what the disparity is in terms of where white students and the grades that they get uh, and then they talked about it and then they switched again with language uh, they said that white or they said middle class middle class parents can go and pressure teachers and they have more resources available for their children not white parents have better resources and would be even allowed to go pressure students principals administrators black parents I don't think of any so-called income bracket would be allowed to come in and get angry or rowdy and advocate on behalf of their children it's certainly not going to be received in the same manner as white parents doing this and the pressuring about grades I've seen that uh, myself uh, directly where white parents could come and advocate and get a grade changed and all the rest of it just yeah discretion and even how we're going to grade I'm sure parents can have a huge impact if they get together and go and say that we don't like the standard of grade grading that's been conducted with our children we want it changed Shh. very different than having a gang of black parents coming up to do the same thing might have to call a resource where is officer slam let's see the mm -mm 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 -mm. They talked about homeschooling. Uh, that was the report that played after that, which I thought was really important. We talked about homeschooling many times over the years on the cows. We've had uh, parents who actually do homeschool, non-Mighty Wick, uh, folks who have talked about their uh, experience. Uh, I thought even some of the things that they talked about in that segment were important. Uh, I know it varies uh, by jurisdiction, but I know here in Washington State, you could homeschool your child and still have them in like debate or volleyball or whatever uh, in like the school teams or clubs or whatever it is or let's say you're a parent and you're you know I feel pretty good about English and you know I did pretty well in calculus and you know social sciences I got that boom 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 history no problem I got that now I don't know chemistry I didn't feel too great about chemistry no problem send them to school for that one class if you really don't want to do that you can find other uh, alternative methods as well but I mean they have it that you could send them to school for one class if you really don't feel comfortable like that's not your strong subject they could do that one class so they're there for an hour and then they leave that way they do get a little bit of the socializing time and can see their friends and all that but you can greatly minimize the amount of damage 
that racists can do to your child in that academic environment but I thought that was great uh, some of the peers I did I think words are important in at least me victims guaranteed qualified VGQ I don't think homeschooling you overcome racism I think it can definitely help you minimize some of the direct racism that your child would experience if they're in the clutches of a white woman and white students and the white principals and all the rest of it. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't say that that is overcoming racism. Just uh, important difference, in my opinion. Uh, and I, even in Washington State, they have resources like they'll have conferences and clubs and things so that you don't have to be alone in all of this. They can still get together and meet other children who are homeschooling. So lots of things to make it easier and much more uh, a much more appealing option, much more realistic option, maybe for parents. Uh, next, uh, I thought it was interesting when they talked about uh, the anger at unvaccinated people in Colorado. They allowed cursing. They normally don't have cursing. Now, they did, you know, have the beeps and things in there. But that's like, whoa, when do people get a potty mouth metaphor on public radio or any of that democracy now or anywhere else? You know, G rated all the time. Uh, but they said Colorado. Now, you don't have a, a huge population of black people in Colorado unless I'm greatly misinformed. I've been to Colorado. I know there's some black people in Denver, a few other spots. But I mean, it's not black people running the city. Al Sharpton doesn't have a headquarters in Aurora, I don't think. So when they're fussing at people not being vaccinated, they're talking about a lot of white people in Colorado who are not vaccinated very important because so many times they get to talking about unvaccinated and they immediately go to black people non-white people that was one and even just hearing that segment uh the whole the, all of it it just it sounds very propaganda uh, to me uh very much like propaganda if people are going to be allowed to come on a platform like i said it's normally g-rated now we can curse and rant and rave at a particular group that just if you want people to get vaccinated, just do more of that. Get Big Bird and whatever else. Get vaccinated as opposed to having people yell and particularly allowing white people to be angry and cursing about something like, ooh, that's the same thing they were doing with Donald Trump 2016. Like, I've seen this. This never ends well. Uh, let's see. The segment, I thought it was so important. I thought of Emmy in med school. Uh, Chitabari Ibe, I think that's how you say his name my apologies, I'm a victim of white supremacy he is the Nigerian uh, med student said he wants to be a pediatric neurosurgeon my goodness, I can barely say all that said it was such a problem he said I need to do something about this I am a self-taught medical illustrator all of the illustrations are of white bodies and pregnant white women. This is wrong. In fact, this is an impediment to me being able to provide quality care and to properly inform my patients. There need to be black illustrations and he went about making them. Spectacular. Black self-respect. Spectacular. I sent it to uh, Emmy so she could check it out I said man they might even bring this up and talk about this 
uh, in med school like oh wow that is important wow what are we doing make sure we're being inclusive and what could be other barriers to teaching to our patients super super important I thought might even be a challenge if you uh, are a doctor or a physician heck I can even say as a yoga instructor it's many fields where you might have uh, a diagram of a human body physical therapist lots of different fields right uh, challenge yourself I am going to get a model of a black person if I have to have that if that's something that I need for my profession no problem I'm gonna get a black representation if I have to make it myself I have to look really hard that'll be my challenge super important bravo uh, to I guess future uh, pediatric neurosurgeon Dr. Ebay uh, next let's oh. the report on the suicide of the NFL player now we heard about Philip Adams at 32. I had to make sure I included this because we talked about this before. I do my regular PSAs. Do not. That's one thing. If you are an attempted black parent, mother or father, no allowing your child to play football. Period. Multiple layers uh, to that. No reason for us to be entertaining whites going out there and giving ourselves brain damage. But I mean, really, like there is no reason at all to have your child involved in an activity guaranteed they're going to have brain damage. I mean, 32 years old, Philip Adams, suicide, and he shoots and kills six other people, grandchildren. And they said, like I said, when this event initially happened, it took a while for them to investigate and then, I guess, do the study on his brain. But his father, Mr. Adams' father said, football messed up my child. That is a guarantee. It is not avoidable if you're playing tackle football, brain damage amongst, you know, whatever else, you know, you can add along with that probably not going to the NFL even so I mean hey no Super Bowl for you and you still got brain damage now I could have went double whammy on that one because it wasn't just Philip Adams I got confused even for a moment so that was one also in retired firefighters area down in Florida they reported Vincent Jackson this was in the New York Times had a growing family a flush bank account from his sterling 12-year NFL playing career and a thriving portfolio of business investments to keep him busy, intelligent, active, philanthropic, and eager to please. He was a he was popular in the Tampa Bay area where he and his family moved in 2012 when he joined the Buccaneers. Jackson, it seemed, was an NFL role model until he was found dead and alone in a hotel room at age 38. In February, just days after his former team won the Super Bowl. Until then, Jackson had hidden his alcoholism and declining cognitive health from the public. Those conditions, though, had accelerated during the pandemic, which had derailed his business and pushed him into isolation. According to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, Jackson was found dead on February 15 
at the Homewood Suites in Brandon, Florida, a few miles east of Tampa, where hotel staff members said he had been staying since January 11. A cause of death was not announced by the Hillsborough County Medical Examiner's Office. Now, the Jackson family has at least one clue to his demise, a diagnosis of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Doctors at the CTE Center at Boston University had determined that Jackson had a mild form of the disease which is associated with repeated hits to the head. Now, I'm just pausing because I don't know mild brain damage. What exactly is mild brain damage? Would anybody like to sign up for mild brain damage? I'll read a little more. Uh, CTE has an array of symptoms including memory loss, trouble managing daily chores, and mood swings which Jackson's wife Lindsay Cowbell said he exhibited with growing frequency in and after the 2016 NFL season, his final one. No need to be involved in football at all. Brain damage, mild brain damage, severe brain damage, because that's what they said about Philip Adams. They said he had severe brain damage. And they said for someone so young, haven't seen this since Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez was 27 when he died and he stopped playing football, I think, three years before that. So whatever CTE he accumulated was by the age of about 24 no way to play football, tackle football safely. Patriots playing as we speak right now. Give a new generation brain damage. Anywho, uh, let's see. Next. Uh, oh, man. Henry in Chicago. I thought of that immediately when I saw the settlement for uh, Anna Jeanette Young. Hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Um Henry in Chicago, someone reported and they said, oh, Henry in Chicago is the one who told us about this case. And he did. It was way back uh, December 20th, 2020. Uh, we were on the compensatory call in and I hadn't even played any reports detailing these events. And he just informed us and we read about it. And then I saw the settlement and went back and got the audio of him uh, informing us uh, to begin with. Uh, but they issued the settlement. Even Lori Lightfoot, he had talked about how Lori Lightfoot had has a long, interesting history of commentary around this case that you can go back and amuse yourself if you have some time and want to dig through the archives at WGN in Chicago or uh, I guess get the Chicago Tribune, what have you, Chicago Sun-Times see uh, her commentary on the uh, young case over the past since 2019 I guess uh, the Potter trial we'll see what happens the white woman in Minnesota white woman officer we'll see uh, Bell Hooks passed away at the age of 69 victim of white supremacy I think that is a total disgrace I said this repeatedly for all of it really all of these everybody has his name Philip Philip Adams uh, and Vincent Jackson, uh, Gwen Eiffel, she passed away, I think, at the age of like 64. All of this, Michael Jackson, all of this is why we, as non-white people, should be super motivated to solve this problem. Uh, 69 years, I mean, all of us, everybody should look at that. That is a total disgrace. We should be here, and I mean, high-quality life. 
you know, out visiting family and writing more books and traveling and doing all kinds of things. Dr. Welsing passing away at 82. All of that disgrace of the highest order. Why we should be about solving this problem so we can get our full, high quality, long life. As Dr. King talked about, longevity has its place. Absolutely. All of that said, uh, with bell hooks, like I, I can't pretend to be a fan uh, of bell hooks work, whatever that means. I've read her material before, but I can't say like, oh, man, I've just been a huge admirer and supporter of her work of victims guaranteed qualified. She did what she could uh, the time that she was here to try to solve this problem. Uh, when I heard of her passing. I reflected uh, because I've I've heard of her work so many times and I've read her work and had uh, just moment memorable moments. I'll say it that way with her scholarship and reading it and how just her scholarship has come into my life at different points. Uh, one of those uh, that I remembered, I went to Atlanta. They had book clubs, but book clubs with black people like I, you know, seen book clubs before. It's not anything special. We have one here, but to be like in Atlanta, like, oh, well, there'll be lots of black people. So when I get there, uh, the book that they are going to start reading is Bell Hooks, All About Love. I had just like literally right before I moved to Atlanta, knew a black female. She had just graduated. So she's all thinking about. Uh, bell hooks and uh, patriarchy and sexism and racism pa uh, capitalism patriarchy all of that so she would talk about bell hooks uh, regularly uh, at least once a week would be some sort of bell hooks reference and you should check out some of her work but then I was like oh I have to do that I have to do that blah, blah, blah. so then we get to Atlanta book club they're reading bell hooks like I cannot believe it we talked about reading bell hooks like I'm going to take advantage we'll read bell hooks which bell hooks are they going to read? They're going to read all about love. We go to the book club. I read the book. I didn't think it was the best book ever. You know, I, in fact, I was a little uh, disappointed. I'll say this. I have a tremendous appreciation for why Mr. Fuller has at the beginning of every book. If you don't understand racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, everything else you understand will only confuse you super appreciation for why he has that front and center anyway so I read the book get to the book club it's all black people even in Buckhead all black people so I get there like man this, I'm listening to what people are talking about the book blah 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 I think, okay they get around to you alright Gus what do you think about you know Bell Hook's work I'm like man it you know a little disappointed like I was all excited you know to read some of her work and you know my pal has been talking about bell hooks for so long and I don't know this book she she's talking about comparing uh, families to leave it to beaver and these other like old-timey television programs and what have you and this black male speaks next and he's like uh, brother you don't know what you're talking about she didn't say nothing about no leave it to beaver and I thought the book was fantastic and she did an awesome job of just talking about the importance that we do need to love one another and black people and I said well you know she she did say make a comparison to leave it to beaver and it was right there and did you did you read it and he said well no I didn't I didn't read the book but I don't need to read the book to know you don't know what you're talking about that's right <laughs> 
all like and I'm looking at other people like did you all did you read the book and they're like yes he, he she she did mention leave it to beaver that is in the book uh and they just moved on like I never went back to the book club again I was disappointed in the book uh and then disappointed to have uh my black brother uh, hush me and he hadn't even read the book which has been staple like the times that I've been at book clubs where I've been hushed uh, and told that I didn't know what I was talking about by someone who ultimately confessed that they had not read the book like at all but Gus T is still ignorant and full of fool talk anywho uh, other times bell hooks has come up in my life i played the audio snippet that we heard before we got to democracy now and my bff amy goodman documentary film black is black inked came out in 1994 you can check it out if you want to it's not bell hooks uh documentary uh but she is in it amongst many other people cornell west is in it as well Anywho, I think we had to watch this for like a class uh, at some point along the way. Might be incorrect. I've seen it more than once, but I think I might have been might have been like forced to watch this at some point. Anyway, uh, that was Bell Hooks in the segment. So they play Eddie Murphy raw, and he's like, you know, if you have sex with a woman and doing that's what she wants, you don't hear about she loves you. And Bell Hooks uh, comments afterwards, and she says, "I saw this and saw black males in the audience, and they're doing the black foul black." power uh, fist in the air I said this is a serious problem I remember seeing that and I was confused about racism white supremacy at the time like I had not the cows didn't exist and you know all the rest of it but I mean I just said man like number one Eddie Murphy didn't say this was black people he said all men I think he says that repeatedly all men I don't know how this gets boiled down to black males specifically but whatever and then I said, uh, I unfortunately have seen Eddie Murphy Raw. I didn't see a crowd shot, nor is it in that documentary of black males, like specifically, exclusively, like that's not present. You just hear the crowd response, them laughing or shouting or cheering, whatever. Uh, but the camera's on Eddie Murphy. You don't get any audience shots to see their response. So I don't know. Maybe she got some deleted footage. Maybe she was there. Maybe she got some extra scenes to actually see black males. I didn't see any black males doing a fist in the air. All I could hear was the black males or excuse me. You don't see. I'm sure there were probably some white people there. Eddie Murphy was a big star. I don't think it was just black people watching him on Saturday Night Live in the 80s. I could be wrong. Uh, but a dark crowd where you can't see anybody so I assume it could have been more that it was not just black people in the audience exclusively that would be an extraordinary thing uh, so they're doing the roo, 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 roo. Uh, I have seen people do that uh, where they're like doing their cheer type of a thing like they did that on Arsenio Hall and Jerry Springer for years maybe they still do it on Jerry Springer I don't know uh, I don't think that's the same thing as a black power salute uh, really at the end of the day I mean I really don't care because people do uh, a fist in the air for all kinds of I've seen people do that at the football game because they're proud they got a first down like I just what does that mean we're about liberation like I have no idea how that uh, watching Eddie Murphy raw is somehow and even I stopped from all of that and said man 
we had Dr. T. Hassan Johnson on the program and he talked about how people mentioned Chris Rock and the big piece of chicken to talk about black males and their shiftless sexism and patriarchy and I said man how is it that Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock these are like jesters why do black jesters literally why do they come to represent the thought and behavior of black males at large even Dennis Rodman I said that in uh, when we read black love is a revolutionary act and Dennis Rodman is quoted repeatedly like why is Dennis Rodman representative of black males at large in a system of white supremacy even if we want to interrogate the oh my goodness and they're looking to reclaim the black phallus and as a sex symbol like just going over the statistics some of which we heard in the program today that we've talked about for years uh, black males do not have power over anybody to dominate we had Dorothy Roberts black female on the program repeatedly but on her first visit she talked about this explicitly and talking about how black females often have more finances they have more education the evidence is bearing that out for over a hundred years how is it that black males would be able to dominate them Dorothy Roberts she said specifically most of the black males wouldn't even make a suitable marriage partner so how are they gonna dominate in all this even if they do the mighty black phallus like really you're unemployed get out of here Anywho, as I said, if victims guaranteed qualified, I said I can't come out and pretend like ah, I have got like bell hooks, autographed books all on my bookshelf and all that because that is not true. Uh, and the times, like I said, that I have come in contact with her scholarship repeatedly in my life, it's been intersectionality and these sort of things where uh, me as a black male end up sounding like I am a patriarch and I am dominating, which is not true at all white people promote some victims of white supremacy they promote some scholarship I think often they do this if it helps to strengthen their system and to keep us confused I could be in error again bell hooks victim of white supremacy but wow wow I did read I even have it here I can read the segment from uh, all about love maybe I'll do it after we hear from some of the callers the last thing that I get in that we heard last does anybody know talk about intersectionality where they call it uh, patriarchy and all the rest of it did anybody hear about Michael Williams Michael Williams in Iowa black male Michael Williams black male Michael Williams who was hanged to death thrown in a ditch and left burning did anybody hear about this I didn't hear about it until this week we're not even hearing a new news clip I just played that because I couldn't find audio of them talking about the white killer Steve Vogel being sentenced this week and how he'll spend the rest of his life in prison even though he wasn't charged with a so-called hate crime they didn't even view this as racism white supremacy 
just looked at his lame excuse and saying that, oh man, Michael Williams was messing with my girlfriend. Cowbell. Love triangle, they called it, whatever that means. But did anybody hear about this case? Like, I, I would like to know anybody that calls in, if you get a hand up to share, just let us know. Did Was this even vaguely familiar? Like, oh yeah, I remember that case. Even if I'm not saying you had to keep up with anything, just have you ever in your life do you think you heard about this case black male hanged to death thrown in a ditch set on fire by a white man and that this happened like within the last year did anybody hear about this case I didn't first learned about it two days ago first time I heard his name learned anything about this black male privilege Number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let me get two quick takes. One, I was mildly like bothered by the reference in the clip from Democracy Now! Their non-white guests saying that intersectionality can be traced back to Ida B. Wells, Barnett victim of white supremacy I never heard her talking about intersectionality I heard her talking about racism white supremacy and black people being lynched even how she had been duped by racists into thinking that these black males were being lynched because they had done something wrong when it turned out man you all are just practicing racism I was bothered if she used the term internet intersectionality you can correct Gusty but I don't think that's the case anyway my uh, second take, if I can get one in really quick. Um, oh, I had so many notes. I lost it. If I if I can't get my other one real quick, I'll I'll save it for I'll save it for later. It was about one of the last segments that we heard. Uh, yeah, I'll come back and get it later. I had several things. I'll save it and get it before we end. Uh, the metaphors. If we could refrain from using metaphors, that would be super super appreciated um, man race soldiers will use metaphors to deliberately be confusing we heard bridge too far that was one they were talking about for reparations might not be able to get passed in California uh, redlining in my opinion I think is a, a metaphor because they're not actually taking a red marker and doing all that uh, anymore they can be more direct about things uh, if we could be as precise exact as possible that would be super appreciated much obliged uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, that would be grand uh, just to make sure everyone has at least one chance to share. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in with commentary to share. Uh, line should be open. We can watch the background noise. That would be great, too. Line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, good evening to uh, the host. Gus Renegade and all the participants of the uh, cows program. Uh, I first wanted to make a comment on the hospitalized COVID patient who was unvaccinated and was uh, seemed to be repentant about not getting a vaccine and was determined to get a COVID uh, vaccine in the future, near future. Uh, I had a, I would have a question, and I would have hoped that the interviewer would have asked this question. Uh, 
did he wear a mask um, at all times when he was in a uh, closed environment with other people? And did he practice social distancing to prevent himself from um, contracting COVID? The second comment is on the critical race theory being taught in Florida or being banned from being taught in Florida. Uh, one of the things that I think about the critical race theory is um, I've never been particularly fond of that um, theory, but I do have questions about it. And one of the questions is, is it truthful? But one of the concerns I have is of it being taught to children in the classes is it's going to be most likely taught by white women who are um, suspected racists and potential race soldiers. Um, uh, commenting on the person who was killed by the white man over the um, love, uh, the, uh, the love interest that he had, he shared with a, a white male, white man. Um, the only, the, the thing that I take most, about that story is to continually inform my um, my sons about the dangers of being in a sexual relationship with a white woman. Uh, that that is something that I would strong in continuing to strongly discourage, even when they. Uh, see it in some type of television programming or uh, that is something I uh, strongly discourage uh, them uh, practicing when they are of age to uh, consent to any type of sexual activity. Um, and one um, a story that I read about this past week was uh, a, a woman named Miriam Zinter, who is an author of a book uh, regarding uh, passing for white. She is a, uh, a, apparently a, 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 a white passing uh, female who is black, who identifies herself as being black, uh, as did well the uh, previous guest that you had regarding uh being white and passing for, excuse me, being black and passing for white, um, she identifies as a mixed-race person of color, but this author, Miriam uh, Zinter, identifies as a black uh, woman. Uh, yes, she identifies herself as a black woman. Um, when I saw the uh, photograph of her, I thought that she would be um, not truly accepted as a white woman, but uh, other people, if they've ever seen this woman's photograph, might have a different opinion. But she definitely looks like a person who um, might not be completely accepted as white. Um, and it brought to mind uh, something to, uh, in my um, something that's personal to me, uh, one of my family members has told me in the past, 
and continually about uh, two white males who uh, have, were supposedly had blood relation to uh, my family directly, and they would come and visit my family, um, but they did not identify themselves as white uh, in their everyday practice, but they were identified as white by white people. And one of those uh, males went so far as to have his uh, driver's license changed from white or Caucasian to black. And it is uh, very puzzling to me, uh, or I'm, I'm intrigued by, the, by a person's uh, choice to identify as black. And I wonder in the case of the, um, the guest that you had on the cows, the author, and the author of this book, uh, Passing for White, uh, Miriam Zinter, if they find that there is some type of benefit for being a white person who uh, identifies themselves as black. Uh, I've known personally that there are people who are white who uh, more closely identify with uh, black people because they have suffered some type of uh, abuse or neglect uh, in their early lives, and they found uh, comfort in being around black people. And uh, I'm just wondering if that is something similar in these two cases or if these people might actually be um, uh, classified as black. I'm not sure. That could be a victim's guarantee qualify, qualified, and I'm not sure if those people, if they are, um, if they are as accepted as white, would those people be suspected white supremacists if they are able to act in the capacity of a white person? Um, also, I'd like to report on the New York City uh, Council, they have passed a bill to allow non-citizens to vote in uh, local elections. Uh, these people can be um, immigrants, and I'll, I'll read it if I have time. If, uh, if not, you can uh, please let me know. I'll just read a, uh, one paragraph. The New York City Council on Thursday passed a measure that would enable hundreds of thousands of non-citizen immigrants who are in the country legally to vote in municipal elections. If the bill is signed into law by Mayor Bill de Blasio, New York would become the largest U.S. city to allow non-citizens to participate in elections. Um, and one last comment I wanted to make was on uh, the passing of Miss Bell Hooks. I had not really ever heard of her work, uh, but it intrigued me when her very close friend um, described her wanting to uh, um, make feel better um, women, girls, or black women, black girls, and black boys, but no uh, mention of uh, adult black males or black men. And that's all I wanted to comment on. Uh, thank you and for listening, and have a good night. I will mute my line. Really quick, did you did you know about Michael Williams? I appreciate you saying you're going to continue to talk to your child about the 
dangers of um, tragic arrangements. Um, but did you know about that case, Michael Williams? I had not heard about that Michael Williams who had been uh, seemingly executed uh, at all. But um, no, I would not heard of that case whatsoever. Black male privilege. And for folks saying that specifically because that's the way it was explained to me that that is a part of black male privilege when black guys like Michael Williams, when they're killed uh, and not just killed, right? Like hung, like we're not talking metaphor at all, hanged, thrown in a ditch, set on fire, that black males get all the attention. Everybody hears about their cases and they're super publicized and they got hashtags and buttons and paraphernalia and all kinds of other, you know, gimmicks and things for people to rally around the black male once they're dead. Hmm. Anywho, uh, keen observation, sir, uh, about, yeah, her saying that she wanted folks to love themselves, black boys and black girls and uh, black women. No mention of black men. Hmm. Uh, that was not Bell Hooks. That was her friend who was, you know, commenting on democracy now. But yes, that is. Uh, he, that's all I can say, man. That's pretty consistent with when I have talked to, talked to other people who've talked about her work or hearing about her theories and what have you. Even I thought it was interesting. It went from where it grew to. Uh, what is it? Capitalist patriarchal or white supremacist capitalist hetero patriarchy man again I totally appreciate Mr. Fuller having at the beginning of the book if you don't understand white supremacy racism what it is how it works everything else that you understand will only confuse you and it's my conclusion that racists oh man they will do everything to push you away from the problem is white supremacy racism they will push let's see if we can add this in there and heteropatriarchy and all the rest of it I'm also saying I'm seeing one of the results not only is it that black males end up being <sighs> no love for the black males and their patriarchs sexists dominators that ends up being a lot of the ways that this is used intersectionality and much of that but also it excludes white women I thought it was interesting they played that segment where Bell Hooks was talking and she said some of her the radical white women who had not unlearned their racism I thought that was interesting because they were still seeing I guess un or it was had not un unlearned their internalized racism to only see or hear her as an angry black woman, which he was, I guess, giving her views and all the rest of it. Like, hmm, that is, I don't even know what a radical white person would be. I don't know what that means. What does one do as a so-called radical white person that no one else does? Anywho, uh, again, victims guarantee qualified to 
bell hooks. Uh, same thing applies. I'm so glad at this point that we have it in place. If someone passes away, especially if they're a non-white person, or I guess this would only apply to non-white people. Non-white person passes away, we do not read their book. I was glad we didn't read Colin Powell's book. Uh, we've had that happen before. We read the non-white person's book and had nothing good to say, or at least I had nothing good to say at all. So we certainly will not read uh, any bell hooks uh, anytime soon. Have to be long time, long, long time down the road. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks, if you have commentary, certainly if we have anybody, if you did know, if you heard of the um, Michael Williams, heard about his uh, murder, definitely let us know. Uh, other folks dialed in if you have commentary to share star six one folks are spectating not sure if they're prepping for their holiday meals and family visits or whatever else is going on. I guess incidentally if folks are going to be participating in all of that you can let us know that too. Um, I'm of the opinion that you know I've said I think I said for two yeah two years take things serious um, certainly seeing folks that you care about uh, attempted family members and other folks if you have friends and all that certainly understand it. I would take things seriously uh, if you can do so if you live someplace where it's warm enough to kind of be outside so you can space and that sort of thing but it certainly would not be any I would not recommend any sort of uh, big time traveling uh, nothing where you have to get on a plane um, it would have to be like driving distance you can drive and hang out with these folks spend a few hours constructively outstanding uh, but if it's anything more than that like hey it's been a really stressful high risk dangerous year like let's try to minimize as much as possible so if you're going to do all that be safe uh, and have a good time be constructive but yeah it would be real minimal no great expenditure on travel and such uh, with everything that's happening right now take things serious uh, let's see uh, folks who have a hand up commentary to share Getting to a spot to talk or what have you, uh, feel free to let us know. Especially if you have, I guess, any folks who are doing the homeschooling as well. I think that would be grand. Uh, if folks have any tips that they would give out to parents if we have any folks who are thinking uh, about that. If you don't have children yet and are thinking about what your parenting situation is going to look like, academic development, uh, and or if you have offspring and you, you know, have thought about alternatives and maybe doing some homeschooling what have you if any folks are engaged in that uh, let us know as I said I know we have folks uh, who participated in all that before uh, and or are doing that now um, it does not have to be super daunting uh, there are resources um, that can make it super 
obtainable, you know, uh, to do it and, and to really have great benefits uh, for your child. And you can even like more directly incorporate racism uh, into what you are talking about teaching, that sort of thing. Anywho, uh, let's see. Make sure I did not miss uh, any of my notes from the news segments that we heard. Again, we'll be here tomorrow for our Global Sunday Talk, so I will be super eager to talk to them about the COVID-19 uh, situation. Uh, I don't know what that looks like uh, where you all at in terms of are they making greater restrictions are they talk? are they saying that like what they heard in the report about the hospitals i know they the uh white house gave out that warning yesterday i talked about that on neutralizing workplace racism uh saying that people are not vaccinated they said i almost included it we had so much uh audio there was so much uh so much that happened this week i didn't want to include uh too much but they said uh people who are unvaccinated it's going to be a long dark winter those metaphors honestly what does that even mean (laughs) uh, what are you talking about like they've had lots of folks lots of folks who are vaccinated who tested positive so what are you talking about like uh, and they said for a lot of the people I'm not a medical expert they said for a lot of the folks who are in the hospital uh, that for lots of those folks there seems to be a correlation one with them being older and with them having some sort of pre-existing conditions so yeah I was not and the like I thought metaphor is always very mindful but long dark winter again we'll check in with the folks who are in other parts of the world to see what they're saying and what you know what sort of what forecast are you getting are they saying it's going to be a long dark winter uh in you know the uk and other parts of the world is that what they're saying on the continent right now going to be a long dark winter heading into 2022 and the specifics on you know what that means when can we expect light in the world again Were those metaphors? That's why I say for the compensatory call in metaphors specifically, specifically, they consistently transmitting those ideas of white supremacy, racism, consciously and/or subconsciously. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a uh, hand up commentary to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I was going on, guys. Interesting that you brought up uh, that long, dark winter. I was just having a conversation the other day with a uh, acquaintance of mine about that because um, I've been hearing that that uh, phrase, I guess, or analogy quite a bit, not only in respect to the um, COVID and all that, but around economics, politics. I even hear people using it in reference to uh, market fluctuations in terms of digital assets like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and cryptocurrency. And it kind of made me start thinking in the conversation, what I was bringing to the point is, well, wintertime, the things that they say is going to be a long, cold winter, it's going to be a cold winter. But it's like, that's that's the point of winter. Wintertime's supposed to be cold. Wintertime's supposed to be dark, with the exception of if you're living maybe somewhere like, you know, Southern California or maybe some Southern states where you get winter, but it's not as 
cold, but nonetheless, wintertime is generally known to be colder than other seasons, correct? So it's like the question that I started asking is, what is their interpretation of a long, cold winter? What does that mean from a psychological point? Are they talking about psychologically it's going to be messy or is it, they're just saying it's going to be mundane? Because I know I live in an area where we have winters, and right now it has been fairly warmer, but it's not as if, you know, I'm going to be outside enjoying the uh, outdoors like you do during the summer. So when I hear that, I kind of started thinking more about, like, what do they actually – what is their analogy supposed to mean? Because wintertime is supposed to be cold and it's supposed to be dark. Um, the case with the guy that you spoke about that was uh, murdered over, it sounds like he was messing with some white girl. Um, I had heard something about it, but it was in an article, I want to say, I ended up reading online um, after another article, but it they hadn't. It had I didn't know it had gotten to that point. They just said they found a, a, a black male who had been brutally beaten and set on fire in a ditch somewhere. Uh, I had heard nothing further until you just presented uh, the remainder of what occurred. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what's going to happen with the uh, global racism side. I like to call in with that. But what I'm trying to find out is what time uh, – do you actually have that? Because I've caught all those global racism conversations on archive or replay. So what time is it that you have it and on what day? So the Global Sunday Talk will be tomorrow, Sunday. Uh, I believe that's the 19th. Uh, and the time, it will be 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 p.m. Pacific. That's what time it'll be live. Uh, if you dial the very same number that you're on right now at that time tomorrow, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, we should be here. Uh, folks from, you know, wherever they are. And uh, yes, we will check in, uh, get, you know, what stood out for them this year, what they're looking at moving into the year ahead. But I definitely want to hear about the COVID situation, as I say, is do would we be traveling? Is that a safe thing right now to be looking to travel? If someone said, hey, I want to travel to Austria or Germany or wherever uh, in Europe, would uh, does that seem like it would be a safe idea right now? See what they think. But yes, we should be here. Give us a ring. Be looking forward to it. Um, so we got one person. He said he heard some of the details about um, Michael Williams. Uh, but didn't, you know, it's not like he followed anything and, and didn't get all of it, but seems like he might have read some an article that gave uh, a few of the facts about uh, Mr. Williams' demise. Uh, what I also want to add in there, Gus, was something that was interesting you said about the COVID side. I was looking, uh, I usually call in for the workplace racism, and I was looking to take a, uh, there's a conference out in Vegas here in January, well, I go to the website for it, and they're talking about, like, you have to be fully, fully vaccinated. And pretty much from what they're saying, I guess you have to have, like, the, the shots plus the boosters. So it looks like that's going to be getting canceled, at least for me, because I'm as it stands right now, I haven't had time to really get any of that done, and I'm not going to rush a process like that. But um, I also saw a special with you bringing up Austria and Germany, which is interesting because – those are pretty close uh, places that are pretty close because, you know, 
Hitler was like Austrian, and I guess he found his footing in Germany. But right now, I was watching a special, uh, I forget what the YouTube um, channel is, but it's uh, like a news organization out of Germany. And they had this um, special where they're showing they're cracking down on people who don't have, who aren't fully vaccinated. But what I found most interesting is they were in like a, in Germany, right? They're in a black barbershop, you know, reading these guys, the riot act. And they were like going through all these files and, and people who are just getting their haircut, they're running up on them. You know, we need to get your documentation and your proof of vaccination. And, and if you don't have that, you got to get out of here. Cause I guess, they say uh, if you're not fully vaccinated, then you're restricted to only doing um, specific uh, activities, such as going to the grocery store. Uh, I forget what the term they used was, but pretty much if it's not a necessity for your survival, then, you know, you can't be there. So I look forward to hearing what, you know, some of the uh, people who exist outside of the concept called America are experiencing. I as well, 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, we should be kicking it uh, tomorrow, um, I guess that's af- yeah, afternoon, all three of those, tomorrow afternoon, we should be here. Um, I'm not surprised um, in terms of the update, so now to be fully vaccinated, that means you have to have the two shots and the booster I saw that um, Notre Dame which is in Indiana quite a ways away from Vegas they said the same thing they updated their um, student vaccine policy uh, I think this past week uh, I don't I think the students might be on uh, vacation I don't know if they're on you know the winter break yet or not but they updated the policy so to be fully vaccinated you have to have that booster shot as well and I saw other uh, jurisdictions. It looked like they were at least thinking about doing the same thing. And yeah, that's something else. Like you were saying, like, man, I'm not, I don't want to rush into this process. Like, you know, let me think about this and, you know, be informed uh, with my body and, and what type of decisions that I'm making. So intelligent, lots to consider. Um, yeah. If other folks, if that's, if you're having to make those similar decisions, that's what I said, like, man, super important. Like, be paying attention to what happens locally, nationally, globally. Take it serious. Pay attention uh, and share. Let us know. I'm, I'm very interested uh, in just, you know, how how all of this is being manipulated and then, you know, how all of this will be used within the system. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Yeah, I'd be heard. Our caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, just a few things. Um, uh, I am uh, appreciative. Well, I appreciate hearing that uh, statistic of how the black uh, families, at least the percentage went up for the homeschooling. And that is true when it comes to, um, racism 
doing the homeschooling, it won't necessarily, it won't, I, I think that's what you mentioned about uh, it won't, like, uh, get rid of the racism necessarily, or, you know, it could, it could help protect or minimize it. But um, it is good to, uh, on the other hand, have the uh, children get some kind of socializing going. Uh, if they would have to um, go to school for like maybe a class or two, depending on the subject. Um, another thing was I thought about that segment where I heard the uh, the crash movie, and I think that was a, a female judge, maybe a white woman. And I thought about some of the judges that I uh, have seen throughout the years where I work at. And it was one where I shared where the guy just like reading the word nigger, like, um, on a, like text message. If there was someone, it was a party during a court hearing that had like evidence of another party, you know, being, I guess, threatening to them to try to get a injunction judgment done. And, you know, hey, he had no problem reading it, you know. Uh, but I thought that segment was interesting. And I guess that was a a press release maybe that she gave about, well, hey, you know, this doesn't represent the way that me and my husband are. I guess maybe there was like a tape or something that was found where they were uh, saying the, the uh, racial epithets, racial slurs. Um and that, that tends to get, well, white people a lot of the time tend to give that response when they are caught practicing racism in that way. And uh, I'm glad the victim, I think that was a victim that was speaking about, you know, this, this is uh, bigger than an apology. Maybe he didn't say that particularly. But um, I agree with having the person resign. But as the phrase goes, the quote, uh, I think Mr. Fuller says white people don't get fired, they get transferred. So uh, that made me think about some of the judges on the job. And um, one thing I wanted to share is that they're going to name a black judge. They're going to put his name on the uh, of the courthouse, the newer built courthouse. So I think that's why some of the, the race soldiers on the job that I work with might be a little quiet as well. Uh, and they're putting a scholarship in his name. Um, and I noticed the, I think that was a white guy. He was saying, hey, uh, before I got this, I guess he got COVID. And then he said he was misled. You know, he was reading things on the Internet. Like, I don't know whatever that even meant. Like, just like the, the, uh, the person mentioned before the caller said, was he wearing a mask? Was he following the protocols? You know, I, I would like to know some of that stuff, too. What did he read from the Internet? Like, what exactly? You know, um, and uh, one of the last things, or the last thing I wanted to mention, really, is about the, the it's called the Stop the Woke, uh, the governor, right, DeSantis. Uh, so I'm reading the local news, right, TV20. North Central Florida. So it says, according to a press release, the stop the wrongs to our kids and employees. Like that's an acronym, W-O-K-E. 
woke act. It says stop the wrongs to our kids and employees or woke act. And I, I, you know, I read that and they hadn't even, I hadn't heard a definition for when they're saying woke because I've been hearing that word a lot. So it says, uh, according to the press release, the, or woke act would, it has five bullet points. It says the first one, it says codify the prohibition on teaching critical race theory in K through 12 schools. The second one is prohibit school districts, colleges, and universities from hiring woke CRT consultants, in quotes. Protect employees against a hostile work environment due to critical race theory training, and it's got that in quotes. Provide employees, parents, and students a private right of action. And the last one is strengthen the enforcement authority of the Florida Department of Education. And then it's got to oh, read the governor's full press release. And it's got the, um, the here link. So I had, I wanted to share that as well since, uh, someone mentioned that. But yeah, they, they put woke in an acronym to say wrongs to our kids and employees. So that, that's all I had to say. Thanks for allowing me to speak. I, I saw that much obliged our caller in Florida. I, I pay attention to what's happening, man. 2024, Ron DeSantis, like you're getting a preview. I thought that was what a lot of this was about, like doing provocative things, make sure that I get my signal out there to uh, race soldiers in the base, uh, what it's going to be about 2024. Let's get it done, man. Let's get it done. Uh, but yeah, I thought white people, they understand words and to make that an acronym, how they want to weaponize that. Incidentally, one, that is great motivation for homeschooling right there. Like, hey, psh, we don't have to worry about what curriculum you're going to have or not going to have. or You can't talk about racism or all the rest of it. We got it. Teaching them at home. Two, I could see how that could be weaponized because it could just be that you are using counter racist logic and or pointing. I mean. We're in Florida. If you bring up the Dozier school, black boys being raped, beaten, buried out in the yard and what have you, white children, too. If you bring that up, I could easily see you being up oh, critical race there. You could even bring up the which uh, the deeds and the archives at the courthouse. Like, man, did you they, they've got all the, the deeds where they had it in the covenants of the houses right here in Florida where nope no houses to negra written right there in the deed and this would be neighborhood and block after block <laughs> CRT critical race theories get out of here not going to have your wokeness disrupt see I could see that totally and even the workplace that's what they said for employees like uh oh you come in here talking some counter racism that's what I said no racism in the workplace you come in there and decide you want to say something about Kim Potter uh oh I could easily see that sort of thing happen and being used both in the school and in the work environment against non-white people. Be mindful. Uh, let's see. We are almost done. So if anybody uh, I'll give like a minute, see if anybody has comment they want to share. We should be here tomorrow uh, for the global Sunday talk on racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll check in folks around the world. 
get their thoughts uh, with it. We'll see if they heard. Did they hear about Michael Williams, black male, hanged, set on fire? Did that make news or were they talking about, you know, other things? Uh, again, if we have any listeners that are in the Kentucky area, for sure, uh, our thoughts. Speedy recovery, uh, black people, victims of white supremacy in the area. Like, why it's been a long time since I have been to uh, Kentucky, but I couldn't even remember. Like, do they have uh, tornadoes in that area? Like I said, I had, didn't hang out there a whole bunch, but like, I'm not for sure if they even have tornadoes uh, in that area. But geez, it just uh, looks like, man apocalypse uh you know that's pretty much what the year has been but man if you have any listeners victims in the area wow uh definitely safety hope you were able to get out safely and uh, doing as best you can uh to get things back together uh wow just looks like utter devastation uh any folks have anything they needed to get in last minute or so Just really quick, I just wanted to say I, I haven't heard of that case, Mike Williams. I have not heard of that. But that's all I wanted to say. Much obliged. <clears throat> I hadn't heard of it either. You know, I mean, maybe I don't know if we have people who listen in the Iowa area. Maybe this was big news. That, like I said, I couldn't even find audio of them just talking about the conviction this week. Like that wasn't even worthy of you know 30 seconds on npr they'll have silliness uh, on npr about all kinds of things like you know five-year-old drives down the street with the dad's car or whatever they'll give that 30 seconds on npr that, that wasn't even worth 30 seconds like oh yes white man convicted for hanging and burning negro spend the rest of his life in jail not a hate crime says he's not racist next and they could have still got the child you know stole the car and went for a joyride Anywho, um, we'll be here tomorrow. I feel like there was one other comment I was going to make, but I reckon uh, unless race soldiers get me between now and then, then I'll share it uh, tomorrow with our global Sunday talk on racism. Or I guess I'll ask really quick when you you uh, I think you told us that you just got back from California recently. I'm assuming that you flew and did not uh, drive all the way from Florida to California and back. How was your your flight experience? Anything, you know, difficult or or challenging? Well, on on the way going there, it was it was uh, it was a smooth way or it was um, like a normal uh, flight there. We just had some uh, delay getting back from um, L.A. here to uh, Gainesville because we went from L.A. to Dallas and then from Dallas to Gainesville. It was just a late flight. That was pretty much everything. But now I will say now um, we because the flight was supposed to get back into Gainesville here in Florida about 6 o'clock or 5.55 East Coast time but i got here uh maybe like toward um 12 o'clock at night but there was a white woman right uh 
and the white people were just annoyed by this white woman. And I was about to board the plane with my uh, mother and aunt. So this white woman was talking about uh, she she didn't want to wear a mask, I think. And uh, the flight attendant got on and the the guy that was checking the tickets, they called him to come back to uh, speak to this lady. And he was like, ma'am, this is the last time I'm going to warn you. If I have to say this again, you're going to have to get off the plane. And um, somebody started talking about, do we have a Karen on here? I think it was a white person, right? So <laughs> it was the, the white people were pretty much, you know, annoyed and upset, but the lady ended up being quiet. Uh, and my aunt, now she said, that would have been me. I would have really been in some trouble. They would have taken me off the plane. But we pretty much uh, got settled in and um, took the flight from Dallas here to Gainesville. But that did happen on the way back. But for the most part, everything was uh, was smooth. Well, I'm happy to hear you made it back safely. You, aunt, mom, everybody got a little sunshine. And, well, I guess you all get sun. Well, not really in northern Florida. Yeah, you all got some sunshine and bravo. Back, Go back and have a grand old time in north Florida. Um, I'm not surprised whether the unruly woman uh, is a Florida resident or a Dallas, uh, Texas resident. Those are both unruly areas where they have bucked. Uh, all of the uh, COVID and all the rest of it. So it would not surprise me. I'm right there with your aunt. Uh, if it's a black person had tried to do that, I could easy wear the handcuffs, the pepper spray, like take you off, you know, in a headlock or what have you. Like, absolutely to get all these warnings. And we're going to speak to you really nicely and professionally encourage you to put that mask on. Um, but that, I mean, and he said he had a smooth flight. Right. Just that little interruption and, you know, a delay. Well, I guess it depends on how you feel like you're supposed to get back at five and it's closer to midnight. Like, mm, I know some people are kind of grumpy about their sleep, but I mean, all things considered smooth flight. That's the type of thing I would say both. You should expect that if you fly or hop on a plane, unruly behavior, just totally crazy. Anything uh, from folks on the plane and, and drinking. Oh, man. Oh, man all of that and then uh, mask or whatever it is whatever's related and then uh, the delays for any reason now it's winter long dark winter whatever that means one part of winter means it could be snowing so it could be a weather delay those are known to happen this time of year anyway staffing shortages because they've had that lots of people want to fly because they haven't been you know to see family and all that stuff so expect anything like that could happen so when it happens you're prepared mentally and then you have some sort of code about how you respond what to do what not to do and all the rest of it but I mean all of that is pretty standard you hopping on a plane to go someplace around this time and or you being questioned where's your paper where's your Rona passport and all the rest of it so yeah I would ensure try to minimize that unless you are super prepared and hopefully we'll get some information to help you be informed tomorrow global Sunday talk on racism 
Uh, so 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Much obliged for folks tuning in, live or archive. I uh, hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Talked about that uh, with Vincent Jackson. CTE and substance abuse. In addition to being sober, if you're going to be out and about, be very observant of your surroundings. If someone is being hostile and rowdy, not a time for verbal confrontations. You should be thinking this person could be armed. Ethan Crumbly. In fact, oh man, they had a report. They prosecuted Ethan, 15 year old Ethan Crumbly, white 15 year old. They prosecuted his parents in connection with that murder in Oak County, Michigan. The white prosecutor, white female prosecutor, said that she got uh, opposition from her own colleagues, presumably uh, white colleagues, fellow uh, prosecuting attorneys saying, oh, man, why are you prosecuting these parents? Oh, man, we shouldn't be doing that. Now, that's another one. Now, imagine if a black 15 year old had went and shot and killed. I forgot how many people uh, died. I think it was like five or six people that he killed. Imagine a black 15 year old had went and shot and killed like five or six white students and he killed the teacher I forgot he shot a teacher too uh, and the parents bought him a gun were irresponsible about storing the gun he had made inappropriate comments they called them in for conferences and everything and they're just real cavalier eh, eh. They, the way they prosecute parents if they put a wrong address down to try to get their children into a better school that went 20 years felony in fact that's going to be fed time 20 years we'll teach you try and lie and put down a wrong address so that's what they do to black parents I've already seen that but she said that, that they, I was going to include that that's why I said it's so much audio can't play everything but I just saw that within the last 24 hours anyway you go out in public, you should be thinking this could be Ethan Crumbly and or his entire gang. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, you're buckled up, you are not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention so we can be very mindful about things happening around us. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim What's brother your problem? You're a victim uh, i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm -hmm.
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>